Welcome to the Screamcast episode 118. I am Sean DeRager, and with me as always is Brad Henderson. Insert yawn here. Silky smooth voice. It only took me like, you know, 118 <laughs> episodes in order to um, get a better mic. <laughs> so, Well, you sound super sexy, and I am jealous because my setup doesn't sound as good as yours. And I, hey. my setup looks legit, but uh, th- these... What what'd you get? The blue uh blue, the blue ball mic? The blue ball. I, I do have blue balls. Um <laughs> however I got the snowball, snowball mic. Yeah. Yeah, those uh snowball mics are good. Yeah, so we'll test it out. We'll see. Because I started out speaking um through my phone was our first uh few episodes, which was a very, very good choice. Um that was a garbage can sound. And then I moved up to uh, you know the mic that uh Sean provided. Yeah, as the piece of shit twenty dollar uh, mic. Well, there you go. That then I moved up to tin can <laughs> and now um I'm silky smooth, Brad, so you can just call me that from now on. <laughs> All right, silky smooth Brad. Uh today we have a pretty badass show. Uh by the way, BJ got stuck at rehearsal, so she's unable to join us uh for this part of the show. Um, I'll just take her what's on your doorstep segments. Uh, I, I'll just, I'll just cover an additional five. I emailed her or I texted her a, uh, crying emoji to express my feelings. That is how you do it these days. <laughs> like a, like a, like a, like a preteen. <laughs> yeah. There you go. My daughter and I will have complete conversations, uh, via emoji. Yeah. It's the same thing with me. Yeah. So Willow and I text and uh you know being that you know that iphone update there's gifts and mm-hmm. you know, all this other shit you can put in there and i just get trump gifts uh, <laughs> all day long <laughs> so it's pretty he, funny he covers the wide gambit of disgust yeah and stupidity hey at least she knows that and she's <laughs> 11 so my daughter does too and she's 11 uh i i you know i have faith in our in our next generation i really do at least you do <laughs> You'll just have to talk me into it. Well, uh, anyway, this week we are going to be talking Dead End Drive-In, the release from Arrow. We are talking to Brian Treachard Smith. Shit, is it Trenchard or Treachard? God damn it. Just say Treachard. Is it Treachard? Smith. Trenchard. Just say Trenchard Smith. <laughs> make a note. I'm going to make a note here because I need Brian Trenchard Smith. That's how Brian I say Trenchard it. Smith. Yeah, okay. You know, I'm not saying a professional, even though one of my, one of the listeners called me out for pronouncing anthology wrong i'm i'm sorry i'm sorry i you know i i grew up in ohio and my dad is from west virginia it's no excuse but there are some words that you know for example i don't say i have to force myself to say it i don't say pillow i say pillow um you know it's just it's just part of it sorry but and I know I say anthology, yeah. like anno. I understand, but anthology. There you go. There you go. Uh, Practice it a few times. I know. I got it. When it's I okay. think about it, I, I I can do it. You know, I can say it properly. But yeah. every once in a while, like when I'm in mid sentence, there are some words that I you know mispronounce. It's it's just because of my you know redneck upbringing from part of my father who says you know coral and. Boral and oral and stuff like that. <laughs> so I po- my apologies. My brother would say pancake uh, until his teens. That Pan- sounds that's awful. Pan-a-cake. That's nothing like 
That's nothing like anothology. <laughs> All right. Anyway, now I now maybe I won't edit that out. Look, Brian, I apologize that I butchered your name. At least I got the I butchered it at the start of the show as opposed to when I interviewed you, even though the interview happened a few days you ago. You kind of paused. You, you kind of paused when you very first said something to him. Yeah. I, it was pretty it was pretty embarrassing and almost it it almost ruined everything. <laughs> the problem is I second guess myself when I start pronouncing things. I just need to go for it. Yeah, like anothology, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there you go. We're not perfect, and that's okay. Uh anyway, Brian Trenchard Smith is gonna be joining us to discuss uh Dead End Driving and some other flicks in his career, including uh Turkey Shoot. Um and his book. And his book. Um, so stay tuned for that. Tomorrow. But first, we need to jump into what's on our doorstep. Holy cow. I almost forgot. We'll get the door. Pizza. Hit it. Hit it, Sean. <clears throat> Hold on. Let me open up a bottle of water. Oh, that's my. That's how I party. I'm drinking coffee shop of bars and gross busters. I'm uh, drinking market pantry, uh, purified drinking water. So basically it's just piss that's been, uh, you know, ran through some filters. Pissed by some hipsters. <laughs> the hipsters pissing a bottle for you. Yep. Those of you who are annoyed at slurping sounds, I apologize. Ooh, I've been called out for that before too. <laughs> oh, I come to think of it, a lot of listeners probably hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I still love you guys. So it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't bother you know, me. I, 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 I pick on everybody, so like I can, I can take it. I think now that your voice is sultry smooth, I think you're going to change some people around. I think people are going to start, you know, liking you, you a little they, bit more. I think they really lasted 118 episodes. No, fuck them. <laughs> no way. I, 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 I want to know, you know, because we have to know, because you know, certain people listen to episodes here and there. You know, they don't listen to every episode. We have a few, I, I believe, religious listeners, um, you know, uh, but I, I mean, our, our, our numbers are great, but I want to know if, because obviously listen to this show, I'm not going to tweet this out. I want to know who has listened to this is 118, 118 episodes of Sean and I from the very beginning, you know, e- even if you came in later. You know, let's say episode 50 or episode 30 or episode, you know, 100. Uh, I want to know if you went back and if you've completed. I'm not talking about like, hey, you started at one and you plan on getting through. I want to know somebody that has a completionist. I want to know every completionist listener and we'll put you in for a drawing or some shit. Oh, shit. Yeah. So just just at me, bro. And let me know. At us. Is that, what they, isn't that what they like just say now? Is that like a thing? I I, I don't I don't listen to podcasts. I don't don't at no. I'm talking about on tw- the twits. <laughs> oh, yeah. At me, bro. There you go. <laughs> Come at there me, bro. Go. That's a ghost. That's a ghost show. You you gonna throw a brick, bro? What okay. was that thing that you said with Ryan me, Ryan Turk <laughs> ghost droids? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it was Ryan Turk. Yeah, the ghost droids. <laughs> ghost droids. Uh, that's fantastic. All right, we're, so cracks me up. we're we're doing the thing that I hate, where the uh, podcast hosts just just go off and just start talking about bullshit. It, our our religious listeners love our stupid fucking banter <laughs> at this point. Like it'd be different if we're just starting out, like episode three. Okay, we're done. Well, meanwhile, we're, like thousands have stopped listening, and our 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 loyal five are are still here. What's up, guys? Thousands and gals. 
It's like probably like four guys and one gal. More like ten thousand, sure. <laughs> but anyways, all right. Uh, I will. I'll, I'll go. I'll go first. How's oh, that? You must. I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and you wouldn't either. So no. Well, the first thing yeah. I, the first thing I wanted to talk about really quick, uh, because I just started the watching this. T- <laughs> the shallows. Uh, we had some people disagree with us on the shallows, by the way, and disagree disagree with me on Constantine the movie. I hey. apologize. I can't win them all, but at least I won Constantine, which I'm a lot more proud of than winning anything over the Shallows. I want the Shallows out of my life. Uh, all right. Well, I, I started watching, uh, kind of going through Scream Factory's release of The Thing. And first of all, I gotta say, this is the best I've ever seen that film. Uh, it's probably in my top 10 films, uh, of all time. Ooh. That's a bold. That's a bold statement. It totally. It was the. the I thing think it's was, in a lot of people's. Like, yeah, but it was other was, than Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, I would say I didn't see Big Trouble in, in Little China until later, actually. But the thing was one of the first movies that really got me hooked on kind of creature features um, and and practical effects. Just the first. I think I didn't even see the. I didn't even see the movie all the way through when I first saw it. My first introduction to the thing was when uh it it popped out of the dog and that that whole sequence and Wait, uh, is i was that the is that's the first it's scene. the beginning yeah yeah no 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 i'm saying that's the first scene that you saw yes of the film so, like like when you were younger like how old were you um i was probably like 8 or 9 oh shit well, it's like uh, what, your parents watching or some shit it was on it was like on hbo or something oh it was on. It was at like like my grandparents' house. Or no, something. I mean that's a that's a great experience. And man, that I mean it was it was like disgusting and and totally freaked me out. And but it was one of the but I couldn't look away, and and I was just so hooked at that whole idea. And I watched parts of the movie and I got scared and ran out of the room a couple times. And you know, but then uh, I always went back to the thing and and you know it's I've I've watched I watched that movie so many times, especially in college. And it's just one of those films I, I always go back to and, and an, an example of like just impeccable practical effects. So it looks great. The last release was okay. I didn't really have any huge it's problems garbage. with it. I, you know, I, it, it looked fine to me, but this looks, this looks incredible. It looks great. Uh, the special features are fantastic. There's a great conversation, uh, with John Carpenter on there. Um, shoot, he's, he's interviewed by, um, Ooh, I hear you typing. Yeah, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna let's see if I can find it here. I'm gonna edit this, Sean. Uh, probably. I don't know. Just, I, just I, I don't know anymore. I sometimes I want to edit the show to make it all hey, tight. And, here's the here's the thing. But, here's the thing is that there's you know, too many shows and too many podcasts. Same thing, I guess. Um, but there's too much where people are like, you know, have all that shit mapped out. They've looked it up, you know, in in order to make maybe the show move more you know smooth but all in all i mean no one knows everything no you know so if you have to look it up you look it up i think we're good i i found this pretty fast so there you did a great job there's an interview with john carpenter which is fantastic i can listen to john carpenter talk about baseball that's an old old interview though Uh, no this is a new one this This is a new one Um, mike garris sits down with him or mick Mick sorry mick Mick Garris? garris yeah yeah 
sits down. All right, and now, now, now you cross the line and making mistakes. I, yeah, I misread it. My Mick Garris sits down and they have a conversation about the movie. It's great. Um, Mick Garris is a great moderator. I mean, I know yeah, he's, he's a, really good. He's a really good uh, moderator for anything, really. Awesome. He's, a, he's also a great speaker. Um, and the other, the other new one of the new features. There's a whole bunch. I think I haven't gotten through them all. I mean, there's so much. There's hours and hours and hours of stuff on here. But there's a uh, a feature interview with Keith David, Wilford Brimley, who I I actually couldn't believe is still alive. Uh, David Clennon. Thomas Waits, Peter Maloney, uh, Richard Ma- uh, Masser, and Joel Polis. Uh, it's a fantastic. It's fantastic. It's us all those guys being Doesn't interviewed. Rob G. Do like an interview with Dean Cundey? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's when the whole thing where he uh, he cheated and he put that out beforehand. I know what you did, Rob, but I still love you. But yeah, it has to be. Isn't it a commentary? Oh, commentary. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Audio, com- audio commentary with uh, with Dean Cundy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where they uh, Dean relays the secret of who actually is the thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, the yeah. Gl- glare in the people's eyes, mm-hmm. which is fascinating. That's a great. That's so great. Um, but there, anyway, if if you're a fan of the thing, I mean, this thing. This, no pun intended, but this Blu-ray is stacked. I mean, this is the end-all, be-all release of of the thing. As it um, should be. It's it's fantastic. And if you've been, because I've been kind of calling, like, I've been kind of critical of, of Screen Factory, you know, double-dipping in these. Like, now they got Child's Play coming out, and... Um, but they're doing new transfers, so it's... Exactly, so... They, 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 they get a free pass. Because here's the thing, is they put a sour taste in everybody's mouth because they did it for so long of re-releasing stuff just again on Blu-ray without actually touching it other than doing special features. Yeah. And people like me, I could give a shit about special features sometimes. Like I want the best quality picture if I'm forking over 20 or $25. Yeah. I could read what you put in on that interview on the fucking internet. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need to watch a fucking well produced you know something by redshirt even though they do great work and i'm you know they very happy they exist but i mean seriously i don't want to fork over that much money when i'm probably not going to watch the interview anyway like unless it's a movie that you know i don't know too much about and then i'll dive into the special features yeah. but well, you know you fucking stack child's play i don't know everything about child's play fucking come at me bro <laughs> well that's what i'm saying like um the movie, the the thing looks great, um, but these two new interviews for sure. Like, I I feel like there's some things in the John Carpenter interview that I didn't know, and there's things for sure. Just seeing the these guys relive their experience now, like at this many years later. Um, I mean, Wilford Brimley's like in his, he's like 82, you know, and he's just sitting there, hun- he's just hunched over in his uh in his you know big old gigantic chair, just. You know, reminiscing about the film, it's great, and it's it's great. And Keith David is, you know, I I love listening to that guy talk, and uh, so hearing all their all their interviews and all their perspectives, um, was just great. And everything else is just kind of icing on the cake. Those two things are are fantastic. Um, anyway, it's just a stacked disc, and then you know, I got the next one to be diving into is the carry, um, special edition, collector's edition. But but yeah, the Screen Factor really has put in the effort for these re-releases because I never thought I would buy Carrie again. I, I wasn't planning on buy, buying Child's Play again. I wasn't, 
even, you know, I was the thing I'll buy whatever it comes out on. But um, like all these films, I wasn't really planning. Cause I already owned the Blu-rays, so I wasn't really going to double dip. But they've done such a great job on these that like if they keep this up, it's a no brainer. I'll double dip because um, sometimes even like Criterion will double dip, you know, like they're going to be releasing Pan's Labyrinth. Um, that disc is already stacked. And I usually end up with if I rebuy a uh, a Criterion film, like there's really not much new to the film. It's just labeled Criterion, you know. Um, so I, I don't you know, but but Screen Factory is doing it right on these. So um, as long as they keep doing this, I'll I'll keep buying them. So that's the thing. Um, next up, I watched another John Carpenter flick. This was a comedy, uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Chevy Chase. This is HD on uh, on Vudu. Did we talk about? It? I don't think we've talked about it. Oh, we were. It seems it. like it seems like you watched this a while ago, though. Uh, I I did, but I keep forgetting to mention it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go redhead. But uh, it's it's right. H it's HD in uh, on Vudu okay. and uh, Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah and a lot of people kind of shit on this film. Like I really had fun rewatching it. I, think I enjoy it. Some of the, the, these are early digital effects. They're actually done really well. Um, and it's just a fun, you know, Chevy Chase film and Sam Neill is in it. I mean, you know, I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's a shame that this isn't on Blu-ray anywhere with them. You know, I think most, I think all John Carpenter's films should just be on Blu-ray and, uh, Warner Brothers, right? I think so. Yeah. So that's but, the reason uh, why it's on HD on Voodoo because all their shit is. Yeah. Usually. But, but it looks it looks it looks uh, it looks good it looks fine, and I had really a uh, really fun time revisiting this um, kind of take on the Invisible Man in in a sense, or this uh, very selfish guy, rich guy, basically turns invisible and shit goes down. I don't know, but uh, it, it's fun to see John Carpenter kind of as a hired gun and take on a film like this, and you know, I always like it when a director kind of goes outside his wheelhouse. And, uh, and try something different. I know he got, you know, like I said, crapped on for doing it, but, you know, I think it's great. I think it's still, I think it holds up. It's a fun little comedy. I don't know. All right. Next up, uh, me and the family checked out Ghostbusters, the 2016 one, uh, the extended version. And I, I don't know if we've talked about this remake that much on the show. I don't really want to dwell on it too much. Did you see it at the theater? I saw it in the theater. And it you was okay. You talked about it on the show. Huh? You talked about it on the show. Yeah, but I watched the extended version. Oh, wow. You watched an extra 10 minutes? Extra Did it get better? Minutes. It uh, it flows better, but it's not necessarily a better film. There's a few extra laughs, but, you know, it flows better. I don't know why they do this, why they cut movies You want to talk like about, I will fucking destroy you even more over that than The Shallows. Well, I mean, Ghost... It's not a great film. My daughter loves it. She had fun with it. Oh, God. It's fun watching as a family, uh, but it does not hold a candle to the original Ghostbusters at all. They, it's a huge, it's not even that. It's like a huge like, missed, oppor- missed opportunity, I think. And, I wouldn't even, but I wouldn't even compare it's a fun the film. popcorn flick. But go, like, ra- rail on it, man. Rail no, away. no, I'm not gonna, I, I don't wanna <laughs> rail on it. I mean, I, here's the thing is that I don't even wanna compare it, you know, cause I, I think it's, I think it's un, un, unfair. Let, let let the movie stand on its own, you know, because, I mean, they are, you know, basically remaking, you know, they did remake. It, it, it's a remake because mm-hmm. no, nothing exists in Ghostbusters world aside for they 
have these weird fucking out of place cameos (laughs) throughout throughout the film. But I mean, it's just that, I don't know, man. Like, I mean, we talked, I think via text or something uh, about, about certain things, but it's just, it doesn't flow well. It, it, it becomes a standard slapstick comedy rather than, you know, Here's the thing is that I, I don't want to I don't want to compare it to the original because I mean ever I've never met anybody that dislikes the original Ghostbusters so you're uh, you're going on territory already where you're going to have a large fan base go against you and we saw that happen and then they casted all females which was even a bigger no no to all these people I could give a shit I was actually excited that they announced it I was on board a Ghostbusters three and a remake. The entire time until Melissa McCarthy was casted and Kristen Wiig, just because I don't find them funny. Um, I, I the girl that plays Holtzman, she was hilarious. I feel like they didn't give her enough to do, and I think that was my biggest thing. Like she just but I, it, that's she probably just, for the best because you don't want to overdo it like they I do guess. Kristen Wiig. But like the whole sequence, like with um, Thor, whatever what was his name, Chris Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth, like. The, the sequence where they're interviewing him and then he like, he shuts his eyes when noises are loud and like, he just is a fumbling idiot. Like, are Mm -hmm. you trying to make fun of Rick Moranis' character? Like, I don't understand. Like, it seemed like they tried to make fun of all the pre-existing characters. That's what it felt like to me. Yeah. Like, like they're making fun of like, kind of how geeky Egon was with the Holtzman character. Yeah. You know, that's just how it felt through and through. The Ghostbusters original movie, those characters felt real and grounded. Like they felt like people you knew. You know what I mean? And the comedy was came out of kind of their interactions with each other and with the supernatural well, they have and, and a long, other characters. Like, all those guys have long-standing relationships. With one. It was, but it was very believable where this just felt like a scripted comedy. All these, a lot of these modern comedies feel too forced with the comedy and it doesn't feel like real comedy, like real, like things that are funny and things that stick with you aren't necessarily people trying to be really funny. It's, it's the situation and the person in the situation where, where this just seemed like it was trying too hard to make a bunch of jokes. Whereas, so the extended version kind of, it, it stretches things out a little bit. So these moments breathe a little better, but it's still not a better film you know, on its own as a comedy because it's it's one of these modern Paul Feig comedies, which I, I they're okay, but they're not great. Like they're never these long. St- I'll never go back and rewatch them. They they are what they are. Like Bridesmaids and uh, uh, was it Spy? Um, See, I haven't seen Spy, yeah, but I, I've seen Spy is probably Heat. his best one. But it's and and I've Heat. seen Heat <clears throat> and Bridesmaids, and both of those films I truly, truly dislike. I hated I hated Heat. It, it, like I said, like they he's trying to do these movies that were kind of staples of the 80s but he's taking out the grounded realism with these characters and just 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 joke after joke after joke and they're not really that but the thing is the jokes aren't even that funny no right yeah and i haven't seen the theatrical cut of ghostbusters i i went in because janice wanted to rent the you know movie so she picked the extended she had no idea and dude that movie's like fucking over two hours long and that is brutal. Like, yeah. and it's just, it's just, I, you know, I, I went in with kind of a positive attitude. I mean, mainly because I was super positive, like I said, until they casted Melissa McCarthy. 
That was my biggest pet peeve. And I don't find Kristen Wiig funny. And I don't find I'm not a big comedy fan. So I'm a little, you know, I'm a little biased when it comes to that stuff because I'm like, Ugh, whatever. Like I, I the thing is, is, I enjoy like comedy like Ghostbusters, but I knew casting with them in, in previous work from Paul Feig or whatever his name is. Um, I just knew that this isn't going to be for me at all. And yeah. it just, and it just, it's, it, it feels like they're failing with their jokes to me. Now, I wish that I maybe saw it in a the theater so I could see people's reactions, but it just was not funny. Like, I was, I don't know. Yeah. I, I want to know if anybody that was like, any listeners that really, really didn't want to see the movie but ended up liking it, let me know. I Just because I want to know it, who, who liked it. Because not only did that movie you know, upset a bunch of people. It didn't do very well to begin with. Yeah. They're not not doing that. I mean, they were planning this as a trilogy. If you kind of rewatching it, I kind of saw some things they were, they're doing. They're basically going to stretch the first movie that the the original Ghostbusters, that whole plot with Gozer into three movies, (laughs) (laughs) which I don't think is the best thing to do. But anyway, the, the silver lining in this flick is my 11 year old daughter, who is a huge, fan of Ghostbusters in general. She loved this film. She loved the the fact that there are these girls fighting the ghosts. So that, you know, and it turned her on to the real Ghostbusters cartoon. She on her there was a she had a friend over and she wanted to watch the original Ghostbusters, the first one that she likes the best. She likes Ghostbusters too. So her like this is all this whole Ghostbusters thing like she likes it as a whole. And this is just another entry into that and but with girls. So She's young and, and she's not going to tear apart a movie like like we would as adults. So me kind of viewing it through her eyes and my kids' eyes, even my little four year old, yeah. Even though there's jokes in there that are going to totally going to go over a four year old's head, uh, he is even like a fan of Ghostbusters in general because of, you know because this movie helps stir all that up. So you know I I can appreciate it for that. I mean if the kids are watching it, I'm not going to be like oh god they're watching. I mean it's not horrible it's just you look at the potential um kind of set by the original and it's like it really could have been updated properly um but it's just i feel like it just turned into a a paul fag uh movie and and if you like those movies great but i I feel like his you know his movies just his movies mostly aren't for me like i liked jason's jason statham and spy like he was the best part of that movie um but then that's about it that's all i want to say on it you know, I mean, Ghostbusters have been beaten to the friggin' ground, <laughs> you know. Moving on. So, uh, finally, this is the movie that I've been thinking about since I saw it, uh, the other day. This is released on, uh, Wellgo USA released this. It's a uh, South Korean film called The Wailing by Na Hong Jin. And Brad, you've talked about this before, uh, when it was out in the theaters. Yeah, I already out, reviewed it. It's out on Blu-ray you right know. now. All those longtime listeners have heard my opinions on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, now it's my turn to weigh in. Um, Go ahead, Sean. Let me know. What, let me know what you thought. Well, when I first saw this, I was like, "It's like two and a half hours," and I was like, "Oh shit!" How's that? I was like, "Oh my god!" Yes, that's a long time for a horror movie. You know what I mean? But but uh, I, it's a little more than a horror film. I exactly, and I thought this was just going to be some, you know. Um, just Asian horror film. I didn't really, I didn't really know what I was getting into at all. And the more that I was watching it, the more that I saw things unfold. I mean, it's this, uh, 
uh, South Korean. He's, he's like this village police officer in, in the city and, and, uh, a bunch of strange shit has been going on. A lot of murders and, uh, people kind of freaking out and just murdering people. And then they're trying to, to figure that out. And, uh, they kind of link it to possibly this Japanese guy that's been roaming around and, and, uh, eventually, uh, his daughter gets possibly possessed by a demon. And then it's, then the movie goes on and him trying to figure out why is his daughter possessed? Is it this Japanese guy? Uh, you know, what's going on? Why are these strange things happening? Uh, and, and all this stuff. And, um, so that's basic plot, like sounds, you know, it sounds pretty standard, but there's this layer of like, um, Judeo Christian, uh, mythology slash, uh, mixed in with kind of, uh, uh, Eastern religion. And I'm, I'm not sure like what South Koreans, um, what religion is kind of the, the main religion there, but, um, so there's like this mis- mishmash of religious subtext to the film and the dealing with good and evil. And I don't want to spoil anything. I mean, this is something that, you know, you're going to want to watch and sit down and have some coffee and really like drive and, and pile into this movie, like, and, and dissect it. Cause there's like, there's so much more going on under the surface with the, the film. And I, I loved it, man. I've been thinking about this since I saw it trying to kind of unravel the ending and um and I want to go back and rewatch it cuz I know now with what I know like I know there's other things kind of woven in there and I but I feel like you also maybe have to know the whatever the eastern religion is like with their kind of exorcist rituals cuz like there's a scene where they're you know they have this uh shaman come in and he's trying to get rid of the demon or whatever and going through this big ritual and and there's kind of these two dueling rituals going on and I feel like I don't know enough about that culture to really, you know, let that sink in. So, but anyway, it's a really good film. I would recommend this to anybody. I think it's fairly cheap on Blu-ray as well. You can grab it for fourteen ninety nine at Best Buy. And uh, I think it, it's streaming as well. So. It's a great movie. Hold on. My dog's scratching at the door. Jesus Christ. Oh, I'll talk. I'll talk. All right, Brad. So, also, <laughs> what's on um, your doorstep? Oh no, no, I want to hold no, on. I want to hear. No, it's going to talk about Nahong Jing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on. So he did um, two other films called uh, The Chaser and The Yellow Sea, um, and and both of those films are worthy as well. And if you want to watch some long Korean dramas uh, and action sequences or action action films, um, but it's contained action. But, um, yeah, the Yellow Sea and the Chaser are definitely ones to look up. I mean, the guy's got three movies out, and, like, he's just nailing it well, one this, right after the other. I read that this took, like, six years to make? It could be. I mean, that's six years ago is probably his last movie. Yeah. So I mean, it's just, it's just, like, the way it's shot, the effects, like... Like, this is, like, the Shining level good. You know what I mean? Like, it's a well-made film. Hmm. Right? No? I, no, I, I, I agree. Because yeah, like, sometimes agree you, you see these movies and they're, they're really good, but there's, some, like, like, really shoddy special effects and there's some shoddy framing. Like, the cinematography's great. The effects are fantastic. The Like, this was... You can tell that this film was, like they were passionate about doing it. You know what I mean? Like everyone involved, like the acting is just top notch. Um, I love like 
the lead character, um, uh, I, I kind of, I just love his attitude because he's just kind of, he has a daughter. Is he divorced? I didn't really catch that. Is he's a, is he's he's a single parent? Uh, yeah, I believe he's divorced. I guess. Yeah, but he'll just kind of like be crouched down smoking a cigarette, you know, and just kind of the way he reacts to things. Like, I don't know, like just just the way he, he's just out of it. Yeah, and that that I, he's kind of bumbling. He's a kind of a bu- yeah. bumbling like police officer as yeah. well. I don't know, man. It's just it's one of those films I really can't wait to rewatch. I mean, if I had time, I probably would have turned around and just rewatched it like right away. It's one of those films for me, and that doesn't happen very often these days because I'm just so busy and don't really have a lot of time to to rewatch things. Like this one, like I need to carve out some time to rewatch it. So I'm probably overselling it, but um, but I really loved it, and I haven't really latched onto a film like this in a while. So. Oh. That's the whaling. Impressive. <laughs> all right. What you got, Brad? Um, all right. Here we go. So I got around to, uh, watching a movie that I guess, yeah, it was released this year. Uh, Lights Out eventually uh, came out on VOD. I don't know if it's out on Blu-ray yet, but it, uh, hit VOD to buy the other day. I don't know if it's to rent just yet. Um, but it's on Voodoo on demand. Um, I dug it. You know, I, I know a lot of people had some problems with it, but I mean, I, I didn't really go in expecting that much. I, I just, you know, it was, of course, the short kind of went viral twice in a way. Like, I remember when it very first, like, went on, like, I think I first saw it, like, on E-Bombs World or some shit like that. Um, and then eventually it sparked up again on Horror Sites. Very effective short. Great short. Um, and then made into a feature. And I was like, okay, you know, just extend that. You know, it was creepy. Let's just do more creepy shit. And that's what they did. Um, it's not great or anything, but I think it has some really effective scares. Um, some really, really fucking cool gags. Um, because the premise is, is that, you know, this, uh, this lady named Diana, she, uh, lives in the dark. Um, Rio Bella's character, she is, uh, haunted, uh, by this woman. Um, she is a single mom, uh, lives with her little boy, her oldest, or her, yeah, her daughter, who is, you know, probably in her 20s, moved out, uh, you know, lives across town. Um, the little boy can't sleep because he can see Diana and hear Diana. Um, so he goes to his older sister and says, Hey, I need to sleep. You know, can I stay with you? So, you know, social services gets involved. Find out the the mom has some, you know, depression issues. She's on medication. Uh, you find out she was like in an asylum uh, when she was younger. And that's where she friended, uh, you know, this uh, Diana character. Um, you know, some shit happens, of course, and I'm spoiler free. Um, some shit happens and Diana haunts her. And the only way that she can contact you is, uh, or, you know, can touch you is in the dark. So she controls the light. Uh, you turn on the light, she disappears, turn it off, she appears. Very much what the short does. Um, but using that kind of, that gag, they do some really, really cool shit and creative things with, uh, light and darkness. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's creepy. The, the character Diana is pretty effective and pretty fucking scary, I think. Um, but I mean, if you just want a fun little popcorn horror flick, uh, Lights Out is probably for you. If you're looking for something, you know, fucking revolutionary, 
uh, you're not going to get it. <laughs> it, had, um, it had pretty decent reviews, though. Like, it's not. Like yeah, it's, I, but it's, it seems like it's mixed for me. Like, I, I feel like it's because I, I even when I text you, I th- think I got like the unfair treatment like the boy did, where I think yeah. people were just expecting too, too much. Because I, I, I think at certain times you have to learn to kind of turn it off. Like, you know, going into a movie, um, but also, like, even if they're not creative with the plot, which Lights Out uh, plot isn't that creative, the same thing with The Boy, it's how they present it that's good, Um, you know, because The Boy is shot very well, Um, you know, it kind of keeps you guessing, very standard plot, the same thing with Lights Out, but I think with Lights Out, there's so many effective scares and so many effective gags that it kind of keeps you going. You know, and it's fucking 80 minutes. Like, what more do you want? Um, so next up was, um, I got around to watching, uh, you know, a film that I've watched countless times. Um, got around to watching the Texas Massacre 2. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a little too fast. <laughs> um, th- this is, uh, you know, of course, the t- Toby Hooper film that came out, you know, like fucking what, like 12 years after the original. Um, I tell you, this film never gets old to me. And it's one of those films that constantly surprises me each time I watch it because I kind of notice new things um, just because there's so much going on. Um, and I, I love kind of that psychotronic, like, exploitation horror where it's comedic, but it's also very serious and it's very, you know, very dark. And it just kind of is really out there. And it really is like a fucking nightmare for, you know, an hour and 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, Dennis Hopper's completely 100% over the top and awesome. You know, I mean, uh, Carolyn Williams is like, I can't imagine that she was able to even speak after this movie, after she filmed this movie, because she just screams so much constantly. And it's just, I mean, it's very effective because it feels like you're right there. Um, you know, Bill Mosley is great. I mean, Leatherface is just completely, again, over the top. All the characters are over the top. Um, but just a really fun, you know, 80s horror flick that's cheesy, scary. I mean, there's some really effective scares in there, too. Uh, just the scene where, um, where Chop Top, you know, his very first at the recording studio and he's talking to Stretch. And like they're going back and forth and she's like, you know, goodbye. And he's like, huh, goodbye. And just they do that exchange and he gets closer. And right in the middle, they're in this dark, you know, corridor. And then they flip on the light and Leatherface's chainsaw is already fucking going. Like as soon as that light flips on, he ch- he charges forward. Really effective scare. Um, But just moments like that make this movie a real treat. And, you know, not to get off uh topic but you know people always complain like oh rob zombies movies everybody's a redneck everybody's white trash (laughs) well that's that's the movies he wants to make because that's what the texas chainsaw massacre is that's what part two is it's that psychotronic exploitation shit like psycho from texas gator bait all those all those films you know poor pretty eddie all those films that we love those are the movies that rob zombie likes so that's the reason why he uses those characters, and that's the reason why he makes his characters like that. It's not really white trash. It's more or less like a exploitation type deal, um, you know. Because 
House of Thousand Corpses is his answer for like Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. You know, very colorful, very absurd. You know, the, 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 um, the, the sets for these films. I mean, just Texas Chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 alone, when they go into the lair, I want to know who the fuck made that shit. I mean, it is gorgeous. You know, on Blu-ray, it's just all, all the lights pop. I mean, the, you know, the sound pops, all the colors. It just, it looks so good. Um, the beads of sweat that are pouring down everybody's face. Um, you know, when fucking Stretch has to put on, you know, LG's face, you know, very reminiscent to the sequence in House of House of Corpses when, you know, um, Otis takes off, um, the girl's, uh, father's face and wears it. Kind of the same sequence at all, you know, kind of, they, they go hand in hand with one another. I think they're kind of a perfect, uh, double feature. Um, but it's still, still a great movie. He always kind of surprises me. Um, it always surprises me how over the top it is. Like I f- tend to forget that. Um, so next up was, um, you know, since I watched it, I wanted to rewatch, uh, the, uh, remake of Texas Chancellor Massacre with Jessica Beale, directed by, uh, Marcus Nispel. Um, I didn't like it when it first came out in like 2003. I think it was the year I graduated high school. Um, I didn't really care for it because I was in that mindset of like no remake's going to be good. Um, so I, I kind of put it off for years and um, I was at Best Buy the other day and it was like five bucks. And I was like, eh, you know, give it another shot. Uh, not that bad. Yeah, it's all you know, right. I'm, it's, I'm, it's, yeah. it's, it's not that bad. The only complaint that I really had was uh, there's just way too much family uh, stuff going on with all the people that are, are kind of involved with it. I wish it was more isolated with, um, you know, kind of Leatherface and maybe a more of a close knit family because they're all distant. Like they really don't interact with one another. You know, uh, RL, uh, R. Lee, uh, Remy's character doesn't mm-hmm. really associate with all the other characters in the movies until the end. And it's just like everybody's kind of out there and it's very spotty where they all are, but they're all in on it. And with all these people running, it's just, I don't know. It, it, it just, I just wish it was more isolated in the house, like the original was, or at least around the farm, and then you know dealing with it that way. But it just, it was just too big, you know, it, running around, and they're always there, you know, somewhere. Um, but I, I like Leatherface. I, I, you know, I thought they did a good job of kind of piecing that character together. Um, seeing his actual face, I was not a fan of. That was really bizarre because I don't think you've ever seen Leatherface's face in any other film other than, you know, of course, the the um, masks that he uh, stitches together. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's actually not that bad. It's got some great, like, character banter. Um, my only, again, and this is just an issue with horror films, um, is that why is it we have a group of friends – and then as soon as something happens, they're like, oh, fuck them. Let's leave them. Like, <laughs> yeah. why in horror films, like, do we do this? Like, you know, there's possi- there is a possibility that, you know, there's people out there that go through, you know, uh, life-changing events like this or, you know, uh, an obstacle that they're like, oh, wait, no, we're not just going to leave our friend here because he disappeared. But it's like always that vote. Who votes that we leave? <laughs> me, me. We're not gonna leave him. He's my best friend. 
And then like somebody else is like, yeah. And it's like, all right, you guys like stay here. We're going to go look for him. It's like, why does this happen? Like, it's just, it's just very, like, it's just very silly. And growing up and going to the theater and watching these movies, there's always that laugh from the audience of like, yeah, right. Like, (laughs) stop doing it. Let people be best friends and go through shit together. And it's probably would add more to the film uh, if there's kind of a camaraderie and a good chemistry between characters, because once you have that one character that says "fuck them," like you automatically want them to die. Right, and, right. right. The, I mean, the, we're going to have people die, but why do we have to have that? It's like just this very like, and now it's just so normal, and we have to have that. It just always bothers me. But I mean, that's just little minor complaints. Um, and then I got around to watching. Um, I talked a little bit about Wild Eye. Um, Last uh, last episode, I covered some a of their films. Bit. Hey, I had three films. You covered their um, entire run. Hey, I, I cover a lot of their catalog. I, I, I enjoy. I enjoy. I enjoy their films. We we were all um, going crazy from like exhaustion last week. Well, I, yeah, it won't be that long. Um, so, anyways, I got around to watching Bunny. Fifty eight minutes. No complaints here. Bunny. Um, yeah, it's called Bunny with an I. Um, basically a woman that is mistreated, uh, comes back in this, uh, kind of sexy, uh, killer bunny. Uh, well, I mean, she's just has rabbit ears on, um, and this white <laughs> mask face. That's but, much any um, sexy costume, I guess, is just like one piece <laughs> of like the normal costume. Well, it was really like, it's so stupid <laughs> how people, how people are on the internet. I just like clicked just to scroll through like reviews and i think someone put like if you like sluts you'll like this movie (laughs) i'm like what is fucking wrong with you dude like how is that even anything that comes to your head like oh if you like sluts you'll love this movie go she's a sexy bunny there's nothing slutty about the girls in this movie they just wear halloween costumes that are kind of revealing um but anyways uh kind of like i really liked it but mm, like some technical aspects, like I don't know what they shot the film on, but it feels like there's every other frame drops in the movie. So it moves really odd. Like it's almost filmed like with an old school, like video, like a uh, camera phone, hmm. like, um, or phone camera, whatever. Um, but it's very odd because it feels like there's frames that are dropped or when they like uploaded it to the DVD, like something happened, <laughs> like they were uploading more movies. <laughs> so like kind of sk- it's a very skippy, um, which kind of like takes you out of the movie a little bit. And the audio is a little off. But I mean, that, that's, this movie was made for like two grand, like literally two grand. Um, but it stays true kind of to the like kind of the slasher genre. Um, you know, getting to know your characters a little bit, uh, 40 minutes into the movie, then we start, you know, slashing people up and kind of has, you know, that corny, like, Hey, this is why I'm doing it. But for slasher fans that like that type of shit, then bunny is definitely for you. And it's like I said, it's 58 minutes. Um, wow. That's not even technically a, technically a full length movie. No, it's not. Well, there's, there's a sequence after the credits, so that's the reason why it's considered a feature, I guess. Is it a twenty um, minute? Is it a twenty minute scene? Uh, movies have to only be sixty minutes. Wow, to be considered a feature, I believe. Um, so it's fifty eight minutes of a movie, and then 
you know, 37 minutes of credits and then a sequence. <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, next up, non-horror. Um, but I saw this at South by Southwest. Eventually, this is out on VOD now and uh, DVD. Weird that they didn't do a Blu-ray of it because the music, it's a, it's a music documentary. So it's kind of odd that you don't put something on Blu-ray. Yeah. Um, especially with fucking loud ass music. Um, I mean, it might be, I, I just, I just know I have the DVD in my hands. Um, so it's called, uh, Breaking a Monster, which it's about this, uh, uh, metal band, uh, called Unlocking the Truth, where it's, um, uh, three, uh, grade school kids that live in, uh, that live in, uh, Brooklyn who have a metal band that they perform in the streets. Um, and now what I really liked about this doc, and I saw this at South by Southwest in like 2015 is that the, the documentary, cause it's three black kids. And, um, one thing I loved about the documentary is very invasive to the point of like, they asked that question that I was hoping that they would ask, like, do you think that you gain popularity because your music's good? Or are you gaining popularity because you're three black kids playing metal? Like, I was like, oh, shit. Like, they fucking asked that question. Like, that's really fucking cool because, like, are these kids really good? Or are we just, like, taken back because it's black people playing metal? And number two, like, I mean, I mean, you got to think about it. As a metal fan, like, how many black artists are there that are Living playing color. metal? Well, yeah, I realize that, but I mean, it's Those guys few and far. Gas too. Did they, did no, they I agree. Living color in the documentary. No, no, no it's more well, the documentary's bullshit. No, no, no. it's it's definitely more about the that about the kids than you know. Cool. It, are they? Why are they? You know, gaining popularity. <laughs> but they do yeah. ask that question. I thought that was kind of ballsy. You know, and it's funny because the kids are like, yeah, <laughs> like, you know, and I was like, you know, that's appropriate answer, you know, because like this, that's just life. I mean, especially coming from the metal community, but these kids, man, they can fucking shred, you know, uh, this, awesome. you know, they start as uh, very, um, you know, just instrumental and being that their voices are changing, they were learning how to sing. Um, now the singing I could deal without. But um, the music alone um, was was great. And so this documentary is about them starting out from being a YouTube viral video to getting their very first record deal. Um, and I really, really hope these three boys stay together because I think they're going to create something pretty awesome. Um, because if you can play that well when you're young, yeah, uh, I can only imagine what you can do when you're older. I how, mean, how old are these, uh, these kids? They're grade schoolers. Damn. I think they're sixth grade and like, dude, they can fucking shred, man. Like you got to think sixth grade, how, you know, Danny's in sixth grade, right? Yeah. And Will, Willow's in sixth grade. Like imagine our daughters picking up a guitar and just playing like solos from Metallica. Wow. Like that's what these kids are doing. So you got to put that in. I'm failing as a parent, apparently, you know, so, but these kids were doing it beforehand, like before this documentary was made when they're in sixth grade, they were doing this beforehand. So like all those like crazy videos that you see, like watch this little kid play the drums 
oh, that's really cool. But these kids are actually making music together, doing covers, creating their own music now. Like, really, really cool doc. Like I said, very invasive. Kind of touches on, you know, those question uh, that, you know, those questions that even the one that I said, it definitely brings it up, which I really liked, you know, because confront, confront people. And, you know, I, I love I love how the kids react to it because they're like, yeah, but we're actually really good. <laughs> like, you know, listen to the music and then people listen to it and they're like, oh, shit, these kids are just really great musicians. So um really excited to see what happens. And I, I really want people to see uh, the documentary. Um, so next up was, uh, you know, I was watching this with my daughter, which I was really excited about. I know I text you about it, but um uh, Hideo Nakata's uh, follow-up to The Ring, he did a movie called Dark Water in 2002. This was released by Arrow on Blu-ray recently. Um, you know, as you know, Hideo Nakata did uh, uh, The Ring, which was, you know, a sensation in Japan. It eventually uh, floated its way over here on bootlegs, and then within, like, three years, we got a, uh, a U.S. remake, which is still one of the best horror films, I think, in the past, like yeah, thirty years is is Ringu on Blu-ray right now? Uh, I don't think so, mm, but I'm I'm pretty sure with them doing Pulse and Darkwater, I think they got a hold of uh, kind of like the Media Blasters, Tokyo Shock, mm-hmm. uh, Magnolias titles because I think Pulse is a Magnolia title, so I think they're going to go through and hopefully release. Oh line of J-Horror films. Dude, if they, if, if Arrow releases like a collector's edition, awesome edition of Ringu, like boner Dude, for days. I, I hope they do the trilogy. Oh I, my gosh. I, I think Ring 2 is a lot better than um, the original uh, Ring. Um, we're talking about the J-Horror titles yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. That American bullshit. <laughs> um, the first American... remake was decent. The, the, the Ring uh, 2 was um, awful. If they just would have stayed true to the original film, yeah, like it would have been a lot cooler. Uh, fun fact about the original film: there's actually two sequels to the original. They made at different times, one Korean, one Japanese. Huh. Uh, the other one's called Spiral. Both still really good. Um, so, Dark Water is kind of a different take i think on on j-horror um because you know i popped it in and i was like i i saw it you know probably 15 years ago um and then you know the jennifer conley remake came out i saw that in theaters so i was like whatever um <laughs> but uh i was i'm always a big fan from like 95 to like 2003 j-horror i really love it even though it's kind of the same like ghost girl in all the films, I I, I think the suspense buildup yeah. and and the amount of dread that's um, pouring through these movies is is uh, something that can really get your heart beating, and, and that's kind of how I feel uh, with these films. Uh, Dark Water kind of does that, but is so much more of a drama, and I didn't really catch that I guess the first time when I watched it. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm digging the movie, but I look over at Willow towards the end of the film and it, it looks like the apartment building is in her eyes. It's just flooded with water. And she looks over at me with this fucking teary eyed face goes and just like kind of gets mad at me. 
saying, you said this is a horror movie, not a, <laughs> not a sad one. And I was like, yeah, this movie is kind of sad. Yeah, it's more of like, a drama. Like, the whole story is very much a, a drama. So, yeah, it's about this uh, little girl and her mom. Um, she <laughs> It's weird because she's like a um, a uh, um, kind of a proofreader for comic books, which was kind of a cool, like, job for, you know, this job. Lady from Japan, you know? So, um, anyways, uh, they're, they're trying to move along with their lives. They move to an apartment building. Um, soon to find out that, uh, the, the building, the, the, uh, apartment above them on the next floor, there's kind of a water leak that's coming through their roof. And slowly they realize, um, cause the little girl keeps on going up to the roof, finding this red bag, um, that there is a little girl that is kind of haunting the building and um she wants she wants somebody um you know a lonely ghost type uh story um and then it kind of goes from there um you know dealing with the little girl and the mom's emotions and you know trying to figure out if she's crazy or not having people call her crazy and uh trying to decide if she is crazy or if there really is a ghost that's haunting their building. Um, but a really effective, uh, you know, it looks, it looks fine on Blu-ray. Um, it's definitely better than the, the Asian Tartan extreme DVDs that came out, uh, of these movies and all the bootlegs. I, I can't rem- I don't even know who officially released this because there were so many goddamn bootlegs of J horror films. Um, but it looks, it looks good. It's very grainy, which I'm not sure is part of, uh, the filmmaking process or if it's just what arrow had to deal with because they don't mention that there's any transfer of film. They just say a high definition transfer to digital transfers, so that's what usually means it's a HD master when uh, companies say that. But it still looks good. They they, def- they definitely played with it and tweaked with it. Um, so uh, a solid J-Horror film, if you like that stuff. It's not as wacky. Or let's put it that way. It's not as wacky as your normal, like, you know, yeah, grudge ring film. Even though there's like 16 grudge films. Um, but yeah, um, and this is another film that you mentioned earlier, Sean, and I have the Blu-ray of it in my hand. Oh shit! So I, I got uh, I rewatched after what fucking I don't know thirteen years when this came out. Oh, ten years. Um, Pan's Labyrinth uh, came out on Criterion Blu-ray. Uh, Del Toro's, um, you know, kind of uh, childhood horror fantasy uh, film. Um, I saw this in theaters and I haven't seen it since. Um, a beautiful, uh, film, number one, uh, but a great story, a very brutal story. Um, and, and that's what I really liked about this film is that, uh, Del Toro is telling a, you know, if you took like Never Ending Story and Crawl and Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, but you made it really brutal. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what Pan's Labyrinth's like, you know, because it's like this childhood fantasy, but there is this big horror aspect. Like, I wish this movie would have existed when I was, you know, like 13. I know. You know, huh? I, I think uh, this would have changed my life. It's yeah. one of those films. 
Um, but you know, I, I saw it in 2003 and I, I watched it again, uh, with Willow, um, because you know, we're doing the whole horror, um, you know, October thing. So I figured this would be a good, a good film. She, she loved it. Um, you know, one the, my biggest complaint with this is why didn't this movie had a great, why didn't this have a great score? Like it doesn't have a very good score. Yeah, like I, I don't think, remember the score. I remember the visuals. This, I don't remember the. the that's what the I'm score. saying. Like I, I remember how beautiful the film is, and it still holds up, and how you know haunting it looks, and the creature effects, and um, just the the father, the you know the the um, the the general. Is he a general or is he just yeah, he's from a, uh, you know? Yeah, I think he's a general. Um, but just how brutal he is. I mean, he bashes a guy's face in with a fucking beer bottle and shoots people in the head, like left, left and right. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I'm sure everybody's familiar with Pan's Labyrinth, so I'm not going to really get into the plot other than, you know, a little girl is, uh, lives with her mom. They go to a, a compound where this general lives because, um, the mother had a husband that, uh, he was a tailor. He died. Um, and the guy who tailored the suits or the guy that would come in and have his tailor, have his suits tailored was the general. Uh, they fall in love. He moves them out there with him and you find out this guy is kind of a piece of shit. Um, and she's, and then the mother's pregnant with, uh, his son. Um, and the little girl, uh, is trying to find kind of a way out, stumbles across kind of this fantasy, uh, world, uh, this, uh, portal, um, that, uh, you know, she doesn't belong in the real world, technically. Um, and it kind of goes, goes from there. A very, a very sweet story. Um, but also not your, like, there's something with, you know, it's going to, I think even dark water kind of goes hand in hand is that, you know, the Spanish horror community, they love to do like really brutal stuff, but have these like really like dramatic sequences and kind of really like they want to say, all right, we're going to stop with the horror for a second and we're going to get real on your ass. That's what these movies do. And by the end of the Pan's Labyrinth, you're like, oh, my God. Like, holy fuck, you know? Um, so uh, definitely pick it up. It's a, it's a new 2K transfer that is uh, supervised by Del Toro. So it's definitely the best that the film has ever looked. God damn it. You're going to um, make me buy this again, aren't you? Dude, it has a 7.1, 7.1 uh, um, uh, new master audio, and it sounds incredible. Like right, the well, gunshots, the explosions of all the war uh, stuff. Um, when <sighs> the fawn creature like walks around and he like he's thudding around. Um, but the, like the one thing I noticed because it sounds so good is that this movie doesn't have a good soundtrack. Hmm. It doesn't have a good score, and that really bothered me because I felt like this movie would have been amplified like twofold if they had like some kind of like. You know, fantasy, even though I'm not a huge Danny Elfman fan, if they would have had like a Danny Elfman soundtrack to it, like it could have amplified the film. But I I don't like I don't know if it's just me. Like, I almost want to rewatch it because halfway through the film, I was like, where's the music in this movie? Like the credits have a great, you know, theme, but there's like no theme song. Uh, I don't know if that's intentional from Del Toro, if he didn't want to focus on that. If you wanted to focus more on the story, then that's obviously, you know, a directorial, uh, 
you know, standpoint on by him. But I felt like the movie could have used a good score, hmm. but it didn't have it. Um, and then last but not least, I think this is last. I think, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'll talk about both films, but um, uh, Arrow recently. Did you pick up the Hills of Eyes box set? Uh, it is on its way to me from Grindhouse Video. Mike, Mike needs to hurry up. Well, he's uh, we're I'm waiting. He was gonna he was gonna ship something out for me today, but I told him to hold off until uh, Exorcist Three arrives, and he's gonna be sending all that to me. So cool. I'm being cool. patient. So holding this box, like hey, I love Arrow's boxes, like the way they feel in your hands. You're not holding something cheaply made. Like it's like hard cardboard that's not going to like you know yeah. they don't do that like uh, well, like they did that for except for Bride of Reanimator they kind of dropped the ball on Bride of Reanimator yeah yeah I wish they would have done that box but I think they learned their lesson because it's not yeah. where those um, kind of folded in boxes like this is a hard like duty cardboard yeah I love like boxes. there's no bending this unless you force it. Um, but anyways, uh, Arrow did, uh, this is a limited edition, I believe. Um, but they did a 4k restoration of the Hills have eyes, um, on Blu-ray, um, as a long, long, long time fan of the Hills have eyes. I've owned this on pretty much every format from the anchor bay two disc to the Blu-ray that image released, uh, to multiple, uh, VHS tapes, um, even having digital files uh, that I've downloaded. I mean, I, I've always been a huge uh, Hells Have Eyes fan. Um, and seeing this film, um, like, it was almost watching it for the first time because you actually see shit. Um, but definitely a wonderful, wonderful transfer. Um, so 4K restoration on the film it looks flawless, it, but it keeps that, like, old-school, like, grainy feel. Yeah, like, it's a the, pretty dirty-looking movie. Like, yeah, yeah, it's it's just, it looks, it still looks dirty, but you can actually see how dirty it looks, that yeah. type of thing. Um, but, I mean, I'm not going to talk about the plot, you know what it is, a bunch of cannibals attack people. <laughs> there you go. Um, but um, definitely some really, really great uh, work that was put into this film, Um you know, a great booklet as well. Um, I don't really usually read booklets, but Arrow, I tended to, because they usually have people that know what they're talking about. And you and Kant, who brings a lot of this stuff to the table, has this really great article focusing on kind of the Hills Have Eyes, like as a whole. So we're talking about Hills Have Eyes, the Hills Have Eyes Part 2, the Hills Have Eyes Remake, the Hills Have Eyes Part 2 Remake, um, and also uh, the not really official, but uh, official Hills of Ice 3 Mind Ripper uh, with Lance Hendrickson. He goes into all that in, wow. in, in great detail and kind of covers the entire franchi- franchise. Um, does a really great job. Very, very great writer. It has, of course, a poster, postcards, all that bullshit that they usually put in there. And um, they pulled uh, the old Anchor Bay uh, documentary on it, which I was really, really happy about because that was my only kind of, uh, cause I think it was lost on the image disc. So I kept the, um, two disc, uh, DVD from anchor Bay Cause I don't remember. I just kept it. Cause I usually do that. Cause I say, I, I kind of contradicting myself and sound like a hypocrite now is that there's certain, well, there's certain things that I look for. Like anytime Wes Craven has to speak, I'm always there. 
Like, I, I just love his voice. I love the yeah, way yeah. he tells stories. He's a great storyteller. So I didn't want to miss that um, uh, uh, interview piece documentary. And they still they put it on there. It's called The Stills, uh, the, I, the Hills Still Have Eyes. Um, and they also have a bunch of new shit with, um, of course, uh, Peter Locke, who kind of supervised this whole thing. Um, which is Wes Craven's producer on the film. So, uh, a really, really great, um, set and, you know, just very well put together. Um, and also has the alternate ending, which I have never seen. So, um, even of all these things I have, I never saw the alternate ending. Um, so watching the film again, I watched this with Willow. Um, this is our late night movie. I guess she didn't have school uh, this past Monday. So we stayed up late and watched it. And she had the same reaction I did when I very first saw it. And when it ends, I'm like, wait, is that it? Like, are we done? Like, did we just end the movie like that? And she was like, man, what a ripoff. Like, what happens to the family? And I was like, I don't, you know, that's just how the film is. I mean, it, there is a continuation, but it's like, it doesn't even feel like part of the Hills Have Eyes. Um, you know, like like the original with 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 a, with a sequel that Craven did, but you know, we dug into the alternate ending. It's not really much of an alternate ending, which I thought was pretty funny. All they do is they flip flop the scenes where um, you know Bobby and his sister kill uh, Jupiter. Um, they put that last um, instead of having uh, what's his name David go after his daughter, and where he. He meets like when he goes to kill Mars because the ending is him killing Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, but he gives the baby to Ruby to, you know, run off with so he can, you know, uh, kill uh, Mars. And it ends with that. Well, all they did is they flip flop, but they put him killing Mars first and then they put um, Bobby uh, and his sister killing uh, Papa Jupiter. And then it ends. The only alternate ending is that they show um the fam, the remaining survivors together and Ruby and the daughter holding hands. Um, and then like beast is like licking their hands and it ends, which it works when you're going into the sequel, because there's always that question of like, wait, why is Ruby like around in the sequel? But, you know, obviously the family takes her in because of her help, but, um, just, it's a weird sequel to boot. I know a lot of people have a lot of beef with the sequel to Hills Have Eyes. But um, as a standalone film, I, I think it's, it's extremely effective. It's very mean. Um, and it's unlike stuff. Uh, you gotta think, like, ni- was this 1977? Like, I mean, you have fucking Craven making uh, Last House on the Left in 72, which is probably about 20 years before its time. <laughs> Um, well, let's just say 10 years because the 1982 shit would have been made like that, like all the time. So probably about 10 years before, like it was probably due for the world to see. And then 77 with the Hills have eyes where he got a lot of flack on that too. Um, just because of how mean, uh, the Hills have eyes is, but Craven didn't overdo it, which I really enjoyed because uh, last house on the left is relentless. I mean, it is fucking brutal. It's really fucking dirty. Um, You know, just the the rape sequence when Krug is carving his name into the girl's chest. Like, it's just really, really tough. Um, In The Hells Have Eyes, 
he does allude to more sinister things happening, but he doesn't go and show it too much. And that's what I really like. Now, Aja was like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to actually do the rape scene in, in the remake of The Hills yeah. Have um, But, you know, you don't really get to see that because it, it would take you out of the movie because so much shit is happening during that sequence. Like, that's what I really love about the film is that it gets so chaotic um, because they're burning the father. They're trying to run outside. You know, Dee Wallace and her mom are trying to defend the place with the baby. The sister's in the back getting attacked by Pluto. And, like, people are left and right gone, you know. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, these people really know how to throw chaos in order to get what they want. Like, they obviously have been doing this for a long time. Whether that's kind of the uh, direction and, you know, the motivation behind that sequence from Craven, But he really knew how to make you feel uneasy um, with the Hills of Ice. But it's what he does in all his movies. Like, not, well, aside from the music of the heart. But, you know, he's really good at at making things so real. Um, even Last House on the Left, uh, even Scream, um, Hells Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street. They have this, even like how bizarre the plot to Nightmare on Elm Street is, it's very, like, it feels very real to me. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. and they ruined, and the reason why I don't really care for the sequels is because they made Freddy a comedian. And the first film, he is a comedian, but it's very, like, down-to-earth type. Like where he's just saying really fucked up things rather than making jokes. I think that's the big difference. Yeah, it, it gets very pop culture-y as he goes on. He's making right. all these pop culture jokes. All right, man. Well, um, do you have anything else? Um, no, man. I think I, I think this is a great set. And it's fairly cheap too, so definitely pick it up because it's like what yeah. under like it's like twenty five bucks or something. Yeah, for for a set like this, I was. Surprise. Grindhouse video has it for twenty seven ninety nine, which yeah. is super cheap. Yeah. So it's it, man, it's just the box alone. Like, I mean, and this is the definitive release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's that's what I love about these things is because when DVDs were coming out, like we had hints of better quality. Um, you know, even when Blu-rays coming out, there's not going to be much more than uh, better than two K and four K. Like you're just not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like even if it is eight K, even four you know, K is. Pushing it. It's pushing it because no one has a gigantic wall they're going to project on, really. I mean, right. 4K's, I don't know. I'll go off on this whole UHD thing. And I think it's, I think, I don't think it's necessary, but, but yeah. Cool. I can't wait for my set to, my set to arrive for sure. Faux show. Let's jump into our interview with Brian Trenchard Smith, uh, and talking about Dead End Drive-In and more of his films. Let's do that uh, in just a second. But first, we have Josh Obershaw bringing us some news. Josh, what's going on, man, in the world of uh, Blu-ray news? We, we missed you last week. I know, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot of people that uh, that miss me too, but I'm back. I'm still alive. <laughs> May not be as active as I used to be, but uh, it's okay, I'm still kicking in. I'm it's still, okay, uh, still bringing you some. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's good because you're you're actually making money. <laughs> you're, you're, you're being busy making money, which is good. Not, uh, you know, working for free on some bullshit Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> True. And maybe I could buy more of these uh, more of these hot items that were that we've been talking about all year. <laughs> it's going to be a very very lovely Christmas for me. Nice. So why don't we get started? And um, I want to start off with um, something that people have actually asked me directly on Twitter about if we were going to cover this. And uh, you bet your ass we're going to cover this because uh, Arrow Video announced that. Um, they are bringing Hellraiser, the Scarlet Box, to the United States, and it's coming out on December 13th. Now, um, for those uh, people who may not may have heard about the Scarlet Box or don't have a region-free player and maybe are just are really, really curious about what exactly is in this box set, I'll give you a quick rundown of what it is. What it is, it's a Blu-ray box set of the first three Hellraiser movies, all 2K restorations, a whole bunch of bonus features, a fourth disc, which is entitled The Clive Barker Legacy, which is exclusive to this box set. It contains Clive Barker short films Salome and the Forbidden, Books of Blood and Beyond, the literary works of Clive Barker. Also, Hellraiser Evolutions. This is a brand new documentary looking at the evolution of the hit horror franchise and its enduring legacy, featuring interviews with Scott Derrickson, who did uh, Hellraiser Inferno, Rick Boda, who directed Hellseeker, Deader, and Hellworld, and Stuart Gordon, plus many others. Plus, you've also got The Hellraiser Chronicles, A Question of Faith, which is another short film. Plus, you get a 200-page book, Damnation Games, which is also exclusive to this uh, to this box set. It has new writings on Hellraiser and the Barker universe from archivists Phil and Sarah Stokes, including chapters looking at Barker's early work, the genesis and production of the first three movies in the Hellraiser series, all illustrated with stills and rare material from the Barker archives. This is a massive, beautiful box set, and I can't wait to get my hands on this one finally. Yeah, it's, since it's I haven't made the upgrade to. I know you have this, don't you? You have the uh, the the import. Yeah, I got the UK release. the The thing that's frustrating um, with these bigger box sets with Arrow is uh, if they're released region two, and you can and you can get them through like Amazon UK or from Arrow directly. Generally, these big box sets, even though they're locked a locked region, um, I'm hearing like an echo. That's weird. Um, they they are generally cheaper if you import it from Arrow UK. Um, cause once, because of what I heard was, I think this was Mike from Grindhouse video. He said that, uh, Arrow manufactures all their discs in the UK. So the shipping charge, the, the cost of shipping from the UK to the, to the distributors in the US adds an extra charge. It, it, you know, it cuts into, um, the cost. So therefore, these are always going to be a little more expensive oh, in the U.S. So what I do is whenever there's a box set, since I'm region free, I have a region free player. One of these box sets, if it's if it's U.K. only and I, I know they'll eventually release it in the U.S., but if I can get it U.K. only, I don't care. Like I got the Stray Cat Rock set for way cheaper than the U.S., you know, um, what it was selling in the U.S. Same thing with this. So. If you're trying to save money and manage manage your money, you know, like we all have, this is our, you know, this is our sickness, right? We collect all these things. Um, <laughs> if you can get these box sets, even if they're region locked, uh, the they're they're from the Arrow UK, you're gonna save thirty to forty bucks easy. 
So that said, um, I think wow. it's like 98 bucks. I mean, it's, it is pricey, but, and they're, they're probably going to release standalones like they did in the, in, in the UK. Uh, if you want to wait and just want this, you know, those releases, they will be cheaper, but this, but believe me, this set is gorgeous. And so you are paying for some of the extras, some of the book, uh, the, the, the sexiness of that box. So, you know, um, you know, weigh, weigh all those options. And there's there's ways to kind of hack buying Arrow uh, box sets uh, the way that I described. So always keep that in mind. Little little helpful tip. Of course. Especially uh, especially this time of year when when it's uh, the holiday shopping uh, season. Yeah, and, and this time of year is when like, <laughs> a, a ton of amazing things get released on Blu-ray. <laughs> Seriously, like for instance, uh, our next... Uh, our next one that we're going to be talking about is uh, Dario Argento's Phenomena. Synapse is putting out a collector's edition steelbook, which is limited to 3,000 units. This is coming out pretty soon. Uh, it's coming out via Synapse, like I said before. I don't know why it went that direction, but it's coming out on November 15th. So it's pretty much less than a month. Uh, it's going to contain two Blu-rays, one CD soundtrack, and a collector's booklet in a collectible Blu-ray steelbook, of course. Let's see what the bonus features are going to be on this. Well, first of all, this thing has three different versions of the movie. You've got a 160-minute version. You've got a 110-minute version. And you're also going to be getting the U.S. version, the one known as Creepers, yep. for the first time on Blu-ray. Yeah, the first Which time I saw kind of Creepers, exciting. the first time I saw Creepers was uh, a a burn, you know, from Amazon. Someone was doing like it was like burn, you know, you're basically buying the burn disc, you know. Um, one of the studios was doing it, and that the first time I saw Phenomena was the the Creepers cut. I have no memory of of the Creepers version when I was a kid. So yeah. uh, the first version I ever saw was the Argento version. When um, what was it? Yeah. Anchor Bay put it out in 2007, 2006. Okay. So that's the first time I ever saw that movie. And I love this movie. So I'm. this is definitely one I'm going to be picking up. I mean, I know it's, you know, Synapse Blu-rays, the Steelbook Blu-rays are really, really expensive. But you get bang for the buck. I mean, you get, you get the soundtrack. I mean, it's the original motion yeah. picture soundtrack containing the complete 16-track Goblin instrumental score for the movie. Along with four uh, tracks from Andy Sex Gang and Simon Boswell. What else we got? We got a commentary track on the 110-minute version from Argento scholar and author Derek Botello. And film historian, journalist, and radio television commentator David DeVal. You got two completely different sound mix options on the 110-minute version. Uh, Dario Argento's World of Horror. This is a documentary, a fascinating look at the early films of Argento, including Phenomena, Suspiria, Demons, Dawn of the Dead, Inferno, and many others. You got uh, trailers. You got the Creepers trailer. Wow. <laughs> Looks beautiful. I can't yeah. wait to own this one. Yeah, I mean, I- like, <clears throat> like, I guess after shipping, it's almost 46 bucks. I mean, <clears throat> yikes, but still. <laughs> It's fully packed, so I'm really excited about it. Yeah, this this one in, in Tenebrae, I, I was considered doing the steelbook. I have the uh, 
Tenebrae, I really wanted that just for the um, that documentary, so I'll be picking that just the standard. This one, I don't know. I don't know if they're gonna still gonna be do a couple discs with the two different uh, versions. I don't, I don't know what they would do for kind of the uh, the the budget version. Um, Tenebrae, they kept all the ex- all the extra features and everything except for the soundtrack. So uh, yeah, and of course the the nice the steel book, but um, I already have the soundtrack on vinyl, so I'm you know, kind of good there. Oh. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> beautiful uh, vinyl of it. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'm gonna keep my eyes open for this because you you can still get. They'll announce the um, the cheaper version, and they're not gonna. Sell, this is three thousand units. They're not gonna sell three thousand of these. Like they still have. You still find demons steel books. You can still find the Tenebrae steel book, and then this one. And there's all the cheaper versions with all those. So, you know. It, you don't have to just jump on these. I'm always thinking the budget, right? I'm always thinking, uh, you know, got to keep try to keep it cheap if you can. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you can swing that exactly. four to six bucks, man, this thing is dead sexy. Hmm. All right. So uh, moving on, what else we got? All right, we know that um, we know that Phantasm and Phantasm Ravager are out right now. You can watch them. On demand, and actually, Sci-Fi played Phantasm Remastered not too long ago. They were doing yeah. a marathon of of Phantasm Remastered three and four. They didn't do two, which we'll get into in a minute. Yep. But um, we do have release dates for Phantasm Remastered and uh, Phantasm Ravager, and that's going to be December sixth. And some of the bonus features that I have listed here for each one: uh, the first movie is going to have a new five point one surround sound. Plus the original mono track, thank goodness for that. Uh, audio commentary with uh, Don Coscarelli, the director, uh, Michael Baldwin, Ingus Grimm, and Bill Thornbury. Graveyard Cards episode, not sure what that's about. Yeah, Interviews from nineteen seventy. It's I don't know. <laughs> hmm. Should look into that. But th- you also get interviews with uh, Don Coscarelli and Ingus Grimm from nineteen seventy nine. Plus you get a, a hopefully. All of the uh, deleted scenes that we saw on the uh, the the DVD that Anchor Bay put out some years ago will be on this because there's a lot of deleted scenes. They shot a lot of stuff for this movie. Hmm. If they put everything in, it could have been a three hour movie, and that's including the stuff they integrated into Phantasm Four. <laughs> for uh, Phantasm Ravager, we've got an audio commentary with uh, director David Hartman and writer producer Don Coscarelli, a behind the scenes look, some deleted scenes. Funtasm, which is a, a collection of bloopers and outtakes, and we also got a trailer. And you can pre-order these via Diabolic DVD. So no word yet on when that box set is, except for the fact that the box set has been moved back to sometime next year. And I'm going to say that the reason for that is because they're still trying to figure out the rights to Phantasm 2, which I believe is still currently with Screen Factory. Yeah. Okay, so that's probably the reason why the box set is not coming out in time for Christmas, and it's probably the reason why Sci-Fi excluded that particular entry in the marathon they did yeah. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting because you know Screen Factor put out a really nice, um, you know, Blu-ray for Phantasm Two, and I'm wondering if they were trying to secure the rights for the rest of them and just got outbid you know i always wonder what goes on behind the scenes there so yeah i'm not sure how much they sign these types of uh distribution deals and um you know if if in fact they can either 
well ago can get the rights to to and, and throw that in the set. Mm. You know, I don't know if it's a deal breaker or not. I mean, if it's already out in a really great you know edition, you know, getting all the rest would be a bonus. But I mean, there are the completists that uh, that like to have everything in one set. You know, um, true. Would be nice. I mean. Th- I'm almost. I'm considering rebuying all the Mad Maxes because it's all going to be one box set here with that black and chrome <laughs> version. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm. I mean, I'm one of those people, right? I mean, if 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 the entire series is in one box, I mean, that's just uh, icing on the cake. But we'll we'll, we'll see what happens with that. So yeah, we'll, we'll see, man. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens uh, with the Phantasm box set. I mean, if they if if this is the biggest thing, I think Wellgo USA's done. So. It'll be interesting to see if so they're far. if they're up to the task because the collectors can be fickle. <laughs> yeah, seriously. All right, moving on. A little bit of a new movie news that's coming out on Blu-ray. We got a some updates on the movie Don't Breathe. We got a release date for that. That's November 29th. and we got uh few little bonus features there. We got some deleted scenes with the director's commentary. We got a commentary with the director, Fiddy Alvarez, of course. Uh, Co-writer, Roto Sayegas. I hope I said that right. (laughs) And actor, Stephen Lane. Plus, we got five featurettes. This is actually, it's a a lot of bonus features for a new release. I mean, whenever there's a new horror film that comes out on, on home video, bonus features are pretty light. So, I'd say this is kind of a healthy dose. I think Lights Out did pretty, it, did, it did pretty well, actually, for what it was, I think. So um, I, I'm excited to see it. Brad That's had true. some good things to say about it. So, well, Yeah, we'll, I didn't, uh, it didn't come to my town, so um, <laughs> I can't wait to see this one. <laughs> my dinky little redneck town. <laughs> So we got some, uh, we got a lot of, uh, Screen Factory updates to tell you about. Let me see if I can find them all. Let's start off with Poltergeist. They're releasing Poltergeist 2 and 3, each of them in their own little collector's editions. And they're both going to be available on January 24th. Now, as far as bonus features concerned, the only thing we know as of right now, they're both going to be 2K transfers. They're both going to get slipcovers and newly commissioned front-facing artwork from artist Justin Osborne, who did the artwork for Life Force, The Fog, Child's Play, and obviously they're going to be reversible. So early word on uh, Poltergeist, or at least Poltergeist 2 and 3. Nice. I saw Poltergeist 2 recently for like the first time in a, a lot of years, and wow, is. I, I can't say that it's aged well, but it is definitely a bonkers, <laughs> a bonkers sequel, to yeah, say the least. Yeah, both of those are pretty bonkers. So for what they are, they're fun. But I mean, uh, they're, they're nowhere near, uh, you know, the first one. I got them both in like a double feature, you know, so I'm not really, um, you know, I'm not really hankering to have the collector's editions of those. Unless the special features can really, you know, bring a lot to the table as far as the whole series I goes. think that's good. Yeah, I think that's going to be the deciding factor for a lot of people, especially yeah. three. I want to know more about three more than I do want to know about one, two. The the uh, like high rise type apartment building, right, or, or hotel or something. Yeah, like it's pretty, yeah, it's the uh, the apartment complex. Yeah, it's yeah. basically the diehard the Poltergeist series, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. Also, we got some 
news on David Cronenberg's Rabid. They're going to be putting that out. Screen Facts are going to be putting that out on November 22nd. And the special features for that include 2K Scan from the negative at director David Cronenberg's preferred aspect ratio. Hmm. Hmm. New audio interview with author Jill C. Nelson. Uh, new Young and Rabid. It's uh, an interview with actress Susan Roman. Audio commentary with writer-director David Cronenberg. Commentary with William Beard, the author of The Artist as Monster, The Cinema of David Cronenberg. An archival interview with Cronenberg, which is always nice. Interview with executive producer Ivan Reitman. An interview with uh, co-producer Don Carmody. From Stereo to Video, a video essay by Calum Vanstall, author of They Came From Within, A History of Canadian Horror Cinema. So this is definitely going to be sought after by uh, the Cronenberg people because Rabbit is a – that one is a wild movie. Yeah, I have the error release, so I've been meaning to, to break that open. This is definitely uh, in need of a revisit for sure. Oh, well, of course. I mean, if you're going to have news about Rabbit, of course there's going to be news about Dead Ringers. Mm-hmm. They're going to be putting that – they're going to be putting that a week before Rabbit. That one, uh, Dead Ringers, is coming out November fifteenth, and it's going to be a two disc set. We got a high definition transfer of the movie, a new audio commentary with writer William Beard, uh, audio commentary with actor Jeremy Irons, score one for Screen Factory. This too has a two K scan at the director's prefer- preferred aspect ratio. Carrie story, an interview with Heidi von. Polesk? I hope I'm saying that right. Sorry. Apologies if I butcher it. We've got a new uh, interview with Stephen Lack. Connecting Tissues, an interview with special effects artist Gordon Smith. Double Vision, an interview with director of photography Peter Suchitsky. Vintage Interviews with Jeremy Irons, Cronenberg, producer Mark Boyman, and co-writer Norman Snyder. A vintage behind-the-scenes featurette and the original trailer. And that slipcover looks... You want to talk about damn sexy. That That is the cover, the new cover for Dead Ringers. Yeah, it's really good. So, moving right along. We've got an update from uh, Jim Wernowski. He's working on a Blu-ray of the movie Hard to Die. Mm-hmm. It's a... It's his NC-17 straight-to-video movie. He just announced this on his Facebook page that he's hard to work on it, hard at work on it. Um, we don't have, you know, a release date or anything like that. But he said he'd hoped, he, he's hoping that this will be out at some point in 2017. And apparently, um, it uses some of the same actresses and plot points as the Sorority House Massacre series. So is this Sorority House Massacre three? Yeah, it's it's kind of considered that. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. It's more of a it's more of a, a rip a riff on Die Hard, but uh, yeah, it's technically uh, I guess technically it would be a soror- Sorority Massacre House Massacre three. That is really weird. I gotta check this out then. <laughs> I can't wait for it. Oh wow, it sounds nuts. And finally, we're going to be taking a look at Vinegar Syndrome. Now, I haven't seen anything about the uh, November 
package. I'm on their website right now, and I don't see anything in it. But we've got a got look a at December. some. Exactly. But <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> well, why don't we take a look at uh, what's coming a little bit sooner first? Okay, fine. It... <laughs> yeah, keep everyone in suspense. They're going to be putting out a Blu-ray DVD combo of the movie Death Machines. And it's going to be 4K from its original Technoscope camera negative. And the bonus features will include... It's going to be region-free on both formats. So that's good. Scan to store in 4K. Uh, director introduction, video interview with actor Michael Chong. Uh, audio interview with actor Joshua Johnson. Some trim, some outtakes, a reversible cover art. And... I'm not seeing a release date for the November package, but oh yeah, here it is. It's going to be November 29th, so it's going to be at the end of the month like all of their other uh, monthly packages. Next up, they're releasing a double feature Blu-ray DVD combo of the first and second sequels to Taboo. So, yeah, this is porn. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I still haven't seen uh, still haven't seen Taboo, so I don't know much about the sequels. But they yeah. are going to be region-free. They're going to be 2K restorations from 35mm Volt Elements. There's going to be a video interview with actor Blake Palmer. We've got the original theatrical trailer for number two. We've got uh, Kay Parker's personal script for number three and reversible cover art. Okay, so now that we got that out of the way, let's get to our sneak peek at December. Vinegar Syndrome has already up for pre-order a lenticular cover for their upcoming Blu-ray of Jack Frost. <laughs> nice. It's it's actually, uh, they're going to be an, uh, putting it up for pre-order uh, over their Black Friday weekend sale. So you have a limited time to grab Correct. this lenticular. And and it's not a slipcover. It's basically like just a lenticular, I don't know, like I guess you, I guess you can put it inside the, the plastic or whatever in front of the cover. So it's not technically technically a, a slipcase, but uh, it's it's so cool looking. So 11, uh, so November 25th and the 20, through the 28th, this will be, this lenticular cover will be able to be pre-ordered. I think you're buying you're buying the cover with the the Blu-ray itself, so the whole package. So, um, so you have yep. a limited time to grab that, which is fun. Oh yeah, it's a fun little uh, fun little um, Black Friday giveaway that they're yeah. having. I mean, especially I mean J- um, Jack Frost. I mean, first we got Hobgoblins, now we got Jack Frost yeah, let's for talk, Christmas. Yeah, yeah, what a time to be alive. I love Jack Frost. It's such a goofy horror flick. And I've only seen this on like kind of crappy like DVD transfers, you know, full frame, uh, just crappy transfers. I can't believe we're going to see this, you know, in 1080p, like the proper aspect ratio and everything is going to be, uh, you know, 2K scan. I mean, I, I, I never thought I'd see the day that I would see this, you know, <laughs> with this type of release, man. It's pretty great. Yeah, pretty excited for it. And there's a bunch of bonus features for this title too. I mean, it's yeah. region free, of course, for both for for both formats. You got a commentary track with the director Michael Cooney, 
a video a video introduction from Cooney, a video interview with lead actor Scott McDonald, a video interview with the DP uh, Dean Lentz, and of course the uh, the lenticular artwork and also some English subtitles. But <laughs> that's that's a lot of bonus features for you know for Jack uh, Frost. A, a, for fucking Jack Frost. <laughs> oh, man. So great. So excited. I saw this the other day when they were kind of teasing it and, and, and somebody <coughs> kind of let the cat out of the bag. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. You know, like, you know, I mean, yeah, it's great. If you haven't seen Jack Frost, remedy that uh, or, you know, just buy this and, and believe us. This is a it's a goofy movie about a killer snowman. What perfect way to bring in Christmas than this flick. For sure. Now we just got to get uh, Santa's sleigh out on Blu-ray, and uh, you know I'll have some. Oh, perks. you mean with you mean with fucking Goldberg? <laughs> yeah. Then we're talking some I mean, really great uh, <laughs> holiday horror. What a goofball oh, yeah. of a film! The movie's not that great overall, but like the opening sequence no. is just fantastic. That's the best part of the movie. Yeah, that is for sure the best part of the movie. <laughs> All right, man. All right, ladies and gentlemen, with that, uh, Merry fucking Christmas. <laughs> and that's all the news that I have for you this week. Hopefully, I'll be back next week with some more fun stuff. Yep. And some more, uh, some more good news about uh, some great holiday releases, such as Jack Frost. Heck yeah. Yep. We'll be taking a break next week. So I will be on vacation. So the following week, we will be back. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more, uh, a lot more. Um, before we get into this interview here, I do need to give a shout out. Uh, Brad and I were on the Horror Dork podcast with Anthony and Mr. Sir. Um, we were just kind of randomly, it worked out that we were going to be guests uh, on there and Brad set it up. Um, so pretty good guys and uh, worth worth checking out. I don't. I think they do, I don't know if they do it like every single night or something like that, but it was like, it was live. So it was... Uh, first for me to do something live i'm used to you know editing out all my freaking you know tongue ties and mistakes and and dead air and they were having some technical difficulties so me and brad were just sitting there and it's live and we're just like you know uh hello (laughs) and so we introduced the show we said welcome to horror dork with uh sean and brad you're listening from the screamcast but uh, it, was, it was pretty fun. I was only in it, in the, on it for about an hour because I had to take care of uh, you know parental stuff. But uh, Brad stayed on for the whole two-hour gig. So check that out. It's over at blogtalkradio.com slash horror dork if you want to hear that conversation. They kind of cover the whole – we talk movies. We talk how the podcast started and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's my first time guesting on a on a podcast. Uh, no, no, actually it's not. I was on another podcast uh, before. All right. So check that out, blogtalkradio.com slash horror dork. You'll see it's, it's a, it'll say Sean and Brad from the Screamcast. All right, Josh. Thanks so much. Thanks, thanks so much, man. Good to talk to you. Talk to you next time. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. And I'll see everybody when I see you. <laughs>
very honored to have with us on the show uh, the director of Dead End Drive-In, uh, Brian Trenchard Smith. Good afternoon or good morning. Good af- good afternoon. It's, it's afternoon for Brad and morning for it's me. It's afternoon for me and morning for you guys. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's a gloomy, rainy uh, morning here in the uh, the hills above Portland, but uh, um, very nice it is too. Uh, so, hi. Well, thank you for your interest. I'm yeah, I'm flattered. Well, uh, Arrow recently released Dead End Drive In on Blu-ray, and and they gave it uh, as usual with their releases, you know, the, the deluxe treatment. And this was one of your films that I hadn't seen yet, and I was really excited to kind of dig in and watch this and and i was expecting kind of just a you know post-apocalyptic kind of uh genre pick and um the thing that i most kind of grabbed onto especially during this like political season was like is like there's actually a deeper layer to this film that i wasn't expecting um yeah. and one of the first things i just because i'm i'm a political nut and i'm always focusing on this stuff and, I, and that's what i noticed but was that something originally that was in the script that was brought to you or that you got involved with at first or when did that level of, of the film kind of get injected in, in, in there? Was it always there? Um, it's the, the film it, it was based upon a short story written okay. by a Booker prize winner, Peter Carey. Um, and it was known as crabs. Um, and that's the name of our hero, who thought he had crabs once, but he didn't, but the nickname sort of stuck. Um, uh, he's just a, a, a regular guy, perhaps not particularly bright, um, and uh, he's living in a, uh, a, a society that has suffered a, you know, an economic you know, breakdown. It's not full-on Mad Max post-apocalypse yet, Uh uh, but it, it's you know it's not been a nuclear uh, or you know it's not it's not broken down because of some kind of external catastrophe. It's uh, society you know and the economy has imploded, and uh, the government uh, have found a, a way to deal with rampant youth uh, crime coming from rampant youth unemployment. Let's say you've got fifty percent unemployment. Um, you're bound to have crime. So they have uh, converted the, the drive-in movie theaters into benevolent uh, youth concentration camps for the unemployed. Anyone who goes into the drive-in uh, and claims the vastly reduced ticket price for the unemployed um, it somehow never leaves. Uh, they take the wheels off their car uh, or just a sufficient number of wheels for the car can't go. Uh, and that car then becomes their home. Um, but they're given, you know, uh, you know, free junk food, no health food in the cafeteria, um, uh, drink, drugs. Um, the girls are put on the pill. Um, they're given an issue of blankets. Um, and uh, most of the inhabitants in the drive-in uh, are really quite happy to be there because – uh, life out there on the streets with warring gangs picking over the scraps that society have left, uh, they, you know, it, it's no fun. So this isn't too bad. You've got violent movies on the, on the screen at night. Uh, you've got music videos playing in the cafeteria. Um, and you can pretty much do anything you like. Uh, so uh, for most people, it's great. Uh, but, it's certainly better than what they had. Uh, but for our hero, 
Um, it was, uh, you know, he had a job. Uh, he had a life. He had, you know, a mother that uh, he lived at home with her mother, his mother and a, his big brother. So he wants to get out. So he represents that that independent spirit mm-hmm. in all of us who doesn't want to be caged. So the essence of all that was in P- Peter Carey's short story. Um, but the kind of social nuances that I sort of layered in later working with the writer uh, were, you know, they, they, I sort of made them more overt. Mm-hmm. Um, tends to be my way. I tend to be a little bit of the overt school <laughs> of signposting. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I just wanted to, to make a few things clear. Uh, I mean, I knew that uh, there could be, some issues with the audience because I was being socially critical of my target audience. This was intended as some kind of youth exploitation flick. Mm -hmm. And I just had fond memories of some of those youth exploitation flicks of the late sixties and early seventies. I mean, take a film like wild in the streets, for instance, uh, that had a strong social message. Um, and you know, in that one the old people were being put into old person's um, <laughs> concentration camps and they were all given heavy drugs and they all walked around like zombies. Uh, and, uh, you know, anyone over 30 was considered to be old. Uh, so there was a, an interesting riff on, you know, ageism gone crazy uh, in, in that film, way, way ahead of its time. So there were a number of let's say Roger Corman esque exploitation films uh, of the, uh, of the late sixties and early seventies that had social issues um, at their core. But uh, the, you know, the audience, you know, had, had the pill was sugared for them uh, by the sort of stuff that um, drive-in audiences would go and see. Um, so, uh, and then you know, go even, you can go back even further to the early fifties and, uh, the monster pictures and the, you know, the alien invasion pictures, um, it all represented, uh, a fear of nuclear war, mm-hmm. uh, being manifested in, you know, various, uh, you know, various different metaphors. Uh, so I, I think it's important to, to try and have, uh, an issue at the core of a film like this. Uh, probably the least popular, uh, uh issue was, you know, the, the issue of racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I mean, you look at what's happening in America today and how immigrants and, you know, the others mm-hmm. are being blamed for the country's woes by, uh, you know, a populist demagogue, uh, and, you know, people, uh, you know, have knee-jerk responses to what they perceive as their own unjust deprivation. So, uh, I did sort of ramp up the issue of, uh, you know, you know, who, you know, would feel that they are more deserving of, uh, you know, of the handout that the drive-in represents, uh, and how they feel threatened by people of a different color and a different culture, uh, coming into their drive-in, you know, right. this is, you know, this is for white people. Uh, you know, um, there are too bloody many of them, you know, and, there's, you know, many, many of those sentiments are expressed. So, uh, I, I thought that you have to look at what happens, 
when you know uh, yeah, so the the social norms are suddenly overturned and uh, how people can you know react um, you know in a very primitive way uh, and it it becomes tribal right and, uh, so and we're seeing yeah frankly we're seeing a bit of that today <laughs> well that's the part that was, that was the part of the film that was really like pointing it to me because you know I, I'm thinking like when this movie was released back in uh, uh, was the late eighties. Um, it was released, I shot it in 85. Okay. It was released in 86. Uh, yeah. At, uh, uh, Christmas, um, see, yeah, it was Christmas 85 in Australia and then it was, uh, you know, released by New World, uh, in 86. Well, uh, yeah. Well, what was interesting, in, interesting to me was like back then this, maybe this seemed a little more ramped up, but today it was like, I feel like we've just gone through this, like this past year, <laughs> this type, that type of fear. Uh, just in in the the populace, you know, right now. Um, w- do you feel that way, or or was is this something that's you know that you were seeing even at the time when you were filming this? Well, uh, I wanted the 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 racial component to be there because of what I witnessed was as the reaction to the Vietnamese boat people okay. uh, coming to Australia. Uh, trying to in, in, in large numbers and being, you know, ha- having a much more compassionate response from the Australian government at the time, uh, which you know was uh, you know a, a Labour government initially, uh, and you know I think uh, there were people in Australia who felt a sense of guilt about participating in the Vietnam War at the request uh, of America mm-hmm. and felt that it was uh, an immoral war. Uh, and so there was, in the political climate, I think of the, of the 70s, um, you know, a will to do something to help uh, you know, the, the wreckage uh, that that war had, co- had cost. Uh, uh, so, uh, I, so the, the racism espoused in the drive-in was directly... In, based on and inspired by the protests that there were to um, the you know the, the number of, of Vietnamese refugees that were being settled in Australia, and of course naturally people of a different culture want to be you know they feel safer living with their own. So there were enclaves of Vietnamese, uh, and one particular suburb uh, was. Um, Cabramatta, the suburb of Sydney, Cabramatta became a, a Vietnamese enclave, and and that was resented by the, the the sudden takeover, culturally speaking, of that region. You know, lots of you know, Asian restaurants and so forth, and Asian neon signs and so forth. So there was, you know, there was a reaction against that. Um, so that's where that came from. But it's a timeless problem, and we're seeing it happen today. I think it's uh, it's it's awful, but yet amazing that even that uh, what era you're in, what year racism is always relevant and it never changes. That's something that always got me, even with movies today, even Dead End Drive-In, um, just even stuff like you know from the '60s. It never ever changes. It's just always there, and uh, kind of a shame. But um, it's always. It's nice to see filmmakers voice um, voice themselves and voice world problems uh, through cinema, through art, um, to kind of have a wake up call. 
Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's always relevant, which I, like I said, it's a shame and, um, um, amazing at the same time. Yeah, but, but here it's done in such a entertaining way. And that's what I really, really dug about Dan and driving was with the style, the, the, the sets, the, all the neon, the music, like it's still very much somewhat of an exploitation film in a sense. Um, with all these undertones, you know, that's, I think I was, I was really surprised. Like I was just sitting down last night to watch it for the first time. And I was just like, well, you know, this would be just a fun little, you know, eighties exploitation, you know, exploitation type flick. And, uh, all this caught me off guard and I just, I couldn't take my eyes off it. I loved it. And, um, but I understand the reaction back when it came out in the theaters was a little bit different. Did people, did, did the audience feel kind of bait and switched or what was, the the reaction well, yes, yes. Uh, there were there were two issues uh, initially the you know somewhat conservative distributor who had agreed to take it on in uh, in in pre-production uh, and thought that it would be you know just a harmless you know um, youth flick uh, was you know they hated it <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely hated it and initially the Australian censor wanted to give it a restricted rating. Uh, could only be shown to the over-18s. We appealed, and we were able, without having to make any cuts, uh, because there's nothing really uh, offensive in Mm -hmm. the visuals. The violence isn't excessive. Uh, The brief moment of sex and nudity is well within the bounds uh, that were allowed at that time for what was in Australia an M rating. Mm -hmm. Sure, but no restriction on entry. Um, and it boiled down to the fact that the, you know, the, the negative values that we were you know, castigating, I suppose, uh, in, in the film, you know, they, they felt it, it, it encouraged, it would encourage those negative values. It, it, you know, in, in, it, it showed, you know, youth just having one long party in the drive-in, uh, with drink and drugs and, uh, uh, and uh, you know they, they kind of misunderstood the whole point, um, and uh, so but we were able to get an unrestricted rating on it. But the distributor hated it, and uh, I think that must have communicated itself to the media. Uh, and at that point in Australian cinema, I think the media was beginning to was was turning against uh, uh, you know ob- ob- you know, let's say uh, very obviously foreign influenced uh commercial movies i mean this was perceived as just a sort of australianization of some um, a, a piece of american nonsense hmm. uh, and critics and and you know media personalities looking to advance their profile uh wanted to take the high road and say you know uh you know we should be making films about our our our, our, our the, the positive aspects of our culture or our history, etc. So it got pretty much uniformly bad reviews, uh, which, you know, I, I think were people were very unfair, I think, to Ned Manning, who, you know, played the, the, the young lad. Uh, and uh, I think he played him very well. Yeah. He was a very recognizable type. Uh, but uh, so uh, it, 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 it was, you know, if it was praised, it was you know, damned with faint, faint praise. Uh, other critics said, "Well, you know, we were expecting lots more action. Where's the action?" You know, uh, but 
Of course, that was not really what the film was about. It's a mood piece. Mm -hmm. And with sudden bursts of action and particularly um, the finale um, and the amazing, you know, truck junk uh, (laughs) stuff. But uh, so, you know, the distributor in Sydney opened the picture in a, in, in, in a multiplex that was still under construction. Uh, and people I knew had difficulty finding which, uh, which screen it was on. <laughs> you know, there was, uh, you know, there was scaffolding around the side of the theater. Um, that didn't help. So it was considered to be justifiably a, a commercial failure. And, uh, and yeah, swiftly went to, to video. In those days, there had to be a sort of one one year uh, holdback mm-hmm. uh, to protect the theatres and drive-ins. Uh, but the drive-ins were virtually dead by then. I mean, we used an abandoned drive-in. Uh, but um, <clears throat> so, however, when the film was bought by New World, uh, they saw more in it than um, yeah than let's say the Australian distributor did. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, they, you know, we got, you know, an excellent review from, you know, Variety, a very good review from Hollywood Reporter and, uh, a fantastic review who, uh, by Michael Wilmington of the LA Times. He, I think he's, he's shifted papers now, uh, but, uh, he's in Chicago. Um, but he really got it. And, uh, uh, that caused people to, yeah, not to see it so much in the theaters, um, because it was it was basically bought to be a filler with, uh, that would have you know, get a, 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 a some visibility through a very fast theatrical release, but the big money was going to be in the VHS release in 1986, which you know I think the, the you know uh, direct to video or you know that you know that that was a boom market uh, in in those days. Uh, and if you had been released theatrically on top of that, that, that helped your profile in the video shops. So it, 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 it was from that that it built its, its following, which has resulted in Arrow, um, you know, doing this Blu-ray. No one in Australia, uh, wanted to do a Blu-ray. <laughs> huh. Even, uh, even still this day? Um, like, yeah, I mean, it's out there on, on, uh, on DVD. I mean, after the VHS, yeah. the, when everything got up raised to, to, you know, uh, to, to DVD, uh, right. but it was, it was just a throwaway. And, but by then, you know, the, let's say the younger media, uh, you know, pundits were beginning to get it and it was beginning to get online um, in the early 2000s, uh, a, uh, a bit more of respect. Um, and then when it featured in Mark Hartley's wonderful documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, um, have you ever seen Not Quite Hollywood? Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's yeah, what I actually, love this, it. that's what I actually first had heard about this film was through that documentary. I've been slowly kind of tracking down a lot of those films. Yeah. Can, yeah. It's a yeah, great I, documentary. I, yeah. I think uh, Quentin Tarantino had seen it. Uh, when he was working in a, a, a video shop in Manhattan Beach, and he had seen a lot of my films that had come, you know, en- ended up in in you know the VHS uh, sections, uh, and uh, you know he he remembered it. So when he was interviewed for Dead End for, for, for Not Quite Hollywood, he he certainly um, really praised it, which yeah. was nice. Yeah. 
but um, so it, you know, it's built its its following, and uh, but you know, no one. You know, I am sure now someone will try and will, will offer to license the Blu-ray um, in in uh, you know, from Arrow and uh, release it in Australia because you know the the work has been done yeah. and uh, that's and it's cheaper now to license it than to have to start from scratch. Um, and certainly, I have another uh, Blu-ray coming out on October the twenty-fifth. Um, uh, and that is the man from Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, have you ever seen the man from Hong Kong? Yeah, I've seen pretty much, I think every one of your feature films, the only things that I'm probably slacking in are some of your earlier documentaries. Um, man from Hong Kong, uh, is <laughs> Blu-ray. Uh, and then there are other early works of mine, uh, which, um, date from uh, 1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1973-1
in, in, as, a, as a normal DVD, but it's a, it's a beautifully shot film and uh, deserves the full Blu-ray treatment. Uh, that so. was a, that's a film that I actually talk a lot about uh, on this show because um, I've always known it as The Quest. Yes, um, yeah. So, and also the Go Kids, but, um, yeah, I was always a big, big chaser. fan. Huh? <laughs> the Spirit Chaser as well. <laughs> and Le Secret du Lac. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and so there are all sorts of, uh, um, yeah, uh, wonderful title, uh, titles that the film has gone under. And it, it totally off the subject, on uh, the subject of title changes. Do you know what the original title was uh, for Dr. No? Uh, was going to be when the film first was released in Japan. Um, they got a, had a translation problem, and they were, and they, they saved themselves at the last minute. They they were going to release it under the title "No, I do not need a doctor." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, see my uh, trailer from Hell on Doctor, <laughs> and uh, you'll you'll learn more. Uh, but oh, uh, that's great. Anyway, titles are wonderful. Uh, Gotta love them. Uh, so, and Dead End Drive In, you know, was a criticized title. Um, you couldn't really call it Crabs because, um, <laughs> well, people, people might be thinking of, uh, uh of, of crustaceans large or small. Um, and so that, that, you know, that wasn't going to work as a film title and we understood that. Um, but, you know, Dead End Drive In, came up and we couldn't think of anything better uh so um but it, it, when you have the words dead end is that is that an encouraging phrase uh so um it, so anyway a lot, lot of people wondered whether that was the right title but it's a title that has stuck and uh and i'm glad the word drive-in is in the title because you know there aren't any drive-ins anymore and uh, this is almost a historical artifact <laughs> Yeah, there. I know there's uh, there's a couple around me uh, here in Southern California, but uh, but yeah, those things keep uh, keep closing down. But the people I hear love it uh, when they can when they can go and and uh, I actually haven't been, but I keep getting invited to go to these drive-ins because you can see like you know three movies for ten bucks. Mm. You take the whole family and 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 it's fun. So um, yeah, it's yeah. a shame. It's a shame that they yeah have gone a- by the wayside. Yeah, no, it is a pity. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I remember I'd never been to a drive-in before I came to Australia. I mean, I'm half British, half Australian, half Irish. Uh, and uh, I, you know, took a ship to Australia uh, from England when I was 19. Uh, and in England, you know, being a cold and rainy place, um, there were no drive-ins. Uh, so I just, you know, I... I my jaw dropped when I saw this um, this beautiful drive-in that was you know just a few miles away from where I was living, and uh, wow! And so I did populate it quite a lot. You know, I, normally people would take their girlfriends, but I just wanted to just go, you know, and see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, it was great to uh, you know have a have a hamburger and you know to eat while you're watching a movie. Uh, something that uh, it, it, yeah uh, I've, I've enjoyed, and the Alamo Draft House has uh, really popularized, popularized that mm-hmm. uh, to, to eat and drink while seeing the movie. Great, yes. um, but yeah, we did try and celebrate some of drive the, the 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 interesting aspects of the mechanics of the drive-in. Um, 
I, you know, have done some work as a projectionist um, when I was a kid, actually, um, uh, because one of the teachers at the school moonlit. He, he was he moonlighted as a uh, as a projectionist uh, at the local cinema. Uh, so I got to be in the projection box and watch how things were done, and looking at the and seeing the changeover between one projector when the reel was just finishing to the next projector and how they synchronized those. Um, so. As everything is digital now, uh, uh, it, it, it's all, you know, I mean, well, let, me, let me go back a bit. You know, films were mounted on 20-minute reels, and then, uh, you know, there was a changeover from one projector to the other. Then they, they brought in the platter system where they joined up all the reels. And, uh, and, of course, when they had to unjoin them and put them back on, on, on uh, the original metal reels, you'd lose a frame or two from the ends. Uh, so... Uh, gradually, uh, you know, films, you really notice a, a blip every time uh, there was a, a, a changeover or what was originally a changeover when uh, films were on the platter system. Now everything is, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know a, 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 it's all digital. It's all uh, you know, uh, zeros and ones. Uh, but uh, I wanted to show the mechanics of the drive-in. Uh, so we, that's, hence we have a shot of crabs you know, trying to find who's stolen his tires and we have a tracking shot with him as he goes past the projection box. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is at that moment that the uh, projector turns, you know, the left-hand projector goes to the, you know, it cuts out and the right-hand projector turns on uh, at the same time. Uh, and this was all done by little cue marks uh, made on the, on the film uh, that the projector, the, the projectionist had to watch and make the switch exactly when he saw the second cue mark. Anyway, it was little bits of you know geeky trivia mm-hmm. like that that I I, I wanted preserved, uh, and so that people knew what the technology was of yeah. the day. Uh, because there's a whole generation now that would have no idea. Yeah, and that's one thing I also noticed about Dead and Driving was, I mean, especially that tracking shot. But it's you know it, it's you can tell it's not uh, shot fast and cheap like. You, you can tell that there were specific shots planned out, and you know, especially that shot, it's great. You know, the yeah. tracking shot well, along. I tend to shot list the entire film before I start. I may not stick to that shot mm-hmm. list, but I, I like to have the architect's blueprint in my mind, uh, and I like everyone to know more or less what we're going to do. Oh, we're going to do fifteen shots before lunch. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Uh, well, we can. We can do it in this way because we're going to cluster a lot of them over there and then we're going to move over here, etc., uh, etc. Et um, but I, there is still some flexibility in the plan. Um, but I, you know, I come from the editorial side of the business uh, and you know, I, I started life uh, editing news film uh, at 20, which was great. Uh, and then I volunteered to make the station promos uh, because I thought they were dull and being a shy retiring type, you know that I am. uh, I expressed that uh, and they said, all right, okay, you have a go. So I did. And naturally I concentrated on sex and violence uh, (laughs) and uh, helped to lift the, uh, uh, the ratings on some of these shows. I I actually, I launched for channel nine, Australia, the, the original season of Star Trek, um, uh, which, you know, naturally I packed the promo with 
uh, with violence and special effects. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, anyway, so uh, I, I come from, uh, let's say, you know, from the editorial side and uh, that the, the editor you know, manages the grammar and syntax uh, of the, 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 the way the story is told visually. Uh, so if you know exactly what you want uh, in, in advance, um, that will really help. Obviously, there are going to be uh, you know, changes uh, that will occur to you and that will spring naturally out of your interaction with the cast and with your, your DP. Um, uh, but it's important to have um, you know, a plan. And then you can use time most efficiently. We had 35 days, uh, well, split day nights, uh, I wanted a constant late afternoon light to be playing in the daylight scenes, regardless of whatever time of day they were. Uh, and uh, so we, we'd often start at three in the afternoon and go till three or four in the morning, sometimes till dawn at five. Um, and uh, that, you know, uh, the, the dawn incidentally had to be very carefully timed <clears throat> uh, and the big st- uh, truck jump uh, stunt was to take place at dawn so that we could see it better. Um, so we actually shot the build-up to it you know, uh, before dawn or at dawn and the actual jump itself at sundown. Uh, and uh, so that's, you know, there was a good deal of planning that went into it. And the whole film cost two and a half million Australian dollars. Wow. Now, that's something I um, want to ask you. With uh, with a lot of your films, there's um, they're very they're very contained, but they're very big. Like you make uh, what looks like huge budget movies, but obviously most of your films uh, uh, you're on a budget. And with with as a as a filmmaker, you said that you do your shot list, which you know answers part of that question to you know cut down on time and. And money, but what comes first with you when uh, heading a project? Um, you know, as far as trying to budget it out, or do you budget around the script as you're writing? Because you know, as a filmmaker, as yourself, uh, everything from like turkey shoot to dead end drive in to you know even stuff like you know your latest uh, drive hard. You know, obviously these are all on a budget. So yeah. what 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 comes first with what comes first yeah. with you? Well, um, generally, you know the budget range that you're going to be operating in. Uh, at, at, yeah, at the moment, you're sort of handed the, the script or the idea or you present uh, an idea uh, or in some cases you know, a spec script to a potential you know, investment source. Uh, you sort of know, okay, I think we can make this for X dollars. Uh, and or I know that this is going to take you know twenty days to shoot uh, to do it you know reasonably well. Um, and what I found, of course, is that then they say, "Well, we can only afford eighteen. Or, "Well, actually, you know, when you say, "Okay, you can shoot this in three in three six day weeks," um, well, actually, we can only afford fifteen days. <laughs> so. Um, uh, it, Anyway, so that 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 is then I have to you know be really clever about still maintaining the production value of the piece. Uh, but 
you, generally you sort of you know, know the parameters within which uh, you're you're working, um, and uh, so first thing is to streamline the uh, the story and or the number of scenes to or the number of locations to what you think uh, you can achieve in the given number of um, of shooting days. Um, I mean, Drive Hard, for instance, had to be shot in 18 days, but they had to be 18 10-hour days. In Australia, you work 10-hour days. The overtime is just punitive. Uh, so it's, it's uh, you know, you've got 10 hours um, with a half plus a half hour for lunch. Uh, so, uh, you know, that that was quite difficult, let's say. But what made Drive Hard look bigger than than, than its budget uh, was the choice of locations. Uh, and the same goes for uh, really every film I've, I've done. This, once I've got the, the storyline uh, down into uh, a, you know, what I feel is a manageable form for the number of shooting days it will probably get, then I look for the, the highest production value uh, you know, uh, locations that I can find. Um, so I, I, I like, you know, I like vistas. Uh, I mean, because I grew up on widescreen cinema, um, and you know, I I was going to movies in the the middle fifties and experiencing you know the joys of cinemascope and seventy millimeter. So, I mean, I'm afraid I have a 70 millimeter brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sees things in that aspect ratio. Uh, so, uh, so I'm looking. Uh, if you've got a dialogue scene between you know, two people in an office, well, uh, they, they shouldn't be sitting across a desk from each other. Perhaps they can, there's a reason why they can be walking the corridors, or they can walk out for a private conversation onto a balcony with a vista of the beachfront below them um and, and uh, so uh i look for ways in which um i can get spectacle uh into the the photography without you know having to pay too much money for it or or build spectacular sets mm-hmm. uh I, I i'll use other people's buildings and they'll be my spectacular sets and and and, and so on so it's um, that's that's the next approach uh so having got the locations uh then then you look at how you can exploit uh what they have to offer uh and place interesting things in foreground do interesting tracking shots um, I, I, I love tracking shots. I, I, I love camera movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it just, you know, it, it is cinema. And so even if I'm making a really low-budget television piece, uh, I, I want to make it cinematic. It's good to know. I wish other filmmakers took those notes. Um, <laughs> that's the reason why I asked because, I mean, we have such, you know, big and grand, big-budget films, but sometimes they're visually boring. It might be a decent movie, but they're visually boring, at least with your films, you know, even some of your lower budget films, like you said, some of your TV movies, they're at least nice to look at. You know, you always have something going on in your films. And I just, you know, I always see that it inspired because you look at uh, other directors, other filmmakers, um, you're always mentioned, which I think is uh, very honorable and awesome. Uh, of course, Tarantino praises you constantly and, you know, even 
homages some of your films in his films. Um, mm. And how, how does how does that make you like feel deep down? Like just as far as like a you know a fanboy or you know just uh, you know how does that touch your heart when you see filmmakers do that or say those things? Well, it, it does touch my heart. I mean, I think vanity has to play a part in any filmmaker's psychological makeup because <laughs> you, you know this is a business that is ninety percent rejection. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, you, you have to, you know, uh, you have to, you know, be, you know, it, it's, it's very gratifying when your peer group, uh, recognize you. And when Joe Dante, uh, invited me to join the band that do, uh, trailers from hell, that was very flattering. Uh, and Quentin's, uh, praise for various films of mine in not quite Hollywood and, uh, and other statements he's made when he's introduced pictures. Um, that, you know, that is very gratifying because I feel these are people who really understand what it takes to make a film, uh, on slender resources. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, imagination, uh, doesn't necessarily have to cost money. Uh, so, and, you know, problems can be solved. Logistical problems can be solved without throwing money at, or, or not without throwing a vast amount of money uh, at them. So, uh, you know, I, uh, I I am gratified when people get me and when they get my my sense of humor, um, because most of my films, well, my early films, have a kind of wry undertone. I both like to I like to celebrate and you know affectionately satirize the genre tropes that go into that particular category or subset of the genre uh, in which I am working. Uh, so there's a, a strong, you know, black comedy vein in an otherwise, you know, reasonably serious film about Vietnam, The Siege of Firebase Gloria. Um, I, I, I found, you know, Lee Ermey's sense of his, his in, inherent sense of humor when I met him uh, to be, you know, very, uh, engaging and entertaining, so I encouraged him to bring that out and improvise upon the existing written dialogue. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was in its way also a bit of a groundbreaking Vietnam film that uh, spoke to veterans and their experience, in, uh, certainly in the, the, the Tet Offensive. Um, and uh, so... I, I, you know, was able to bring a vein of humor to, you know, uh, a dark subject um, that I think made that uh, made it more more effective. Mm -hmm. So, uh, though there are, you know, people who only see my films as just exploitation, uh, but there's a, a vein of humor that I try to bring to uh, these these pieces as well. Uh, so, that is gratifying when people. Um, you know, recognize that. And I have recently uh, turned uh, to, you know, uh, writing a novel, uh, no. which uh, you may or may not be aware of. Anyway, <laughs> here it is. And uh, uh, this is um, The Headsman's Daughter, uh, which is a time-tripping metaphysical thriller, uh, uh, which also has a strong vein of humor in it. Um, it's, uh, I guess in genre terms, it's, uh, uh, Game of Thrones meets Jason Bourne on Freaky Friday. <laughs> uh, and uh, if there are any of my fans out there, 
um, who would really like me to make another movie soon, um, and, and I may well make uh, one or two movies next year. We'll see. Uh, uh, it's taken a long time to get a couple of things you know, ready for market. Um, but I encourage anyone who likes my films to go to Amazon or Kindle um, and buy uh, The Headsman's Daughter, which uh, is you know, a, a time-tripping metaphysical thriller that takes place uh, in the 16th century and present day simultaneously uh, by a past life swap. Uh, and it's a ripping yarn that is you know, very evocative of, you know, of, of, let's say, the, the pacey action thrillers that I have made um, where, you know, with every couple of pages you've got a cliffhanger and you've got some, in, a, in about four different parts of the book, you have a jaw-dropping twist. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, oh, what? God, oh, now I'm rethinking this. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, get to page 70. Get to page 70. <laughs> uh, so what I've tried to do, and it's reflected in the trailer I've made for the book, uh, and maybe you'd be so kind as to link the trailer to your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's on YouTube, The Headsman's Daughter, um, yeah, a book trailer. Uh, it's on YouTube and Vimeo. Um, the yeah, the long one. It's a minute seventeen. Okay. Uh, but I've tried to get the audience to understand uh, that uh, I made a, a a sort of a genre mashup in novel form. And so, if you like my movies and you like the the, the pace at which things move and the occasional outrageous, you know, surprising events that, are, that occur in them, uh, then just read the book and let. Let let it play in your mind like a movie, uh, and it'll rock. Two hundred and forty-eight pages will rock it along, <laughs> and at the very end, you'll think, "Woo, okay." But you know what happens next? Because um, while the film, this the film, you see, I'm doing it myself. Uh, <laughs> the book has closure to its immediate story, but you know, uh, there's there, there's more to come. Uh, there's obviously, you know, that this thing is going to go on. We've just, we're, we're just taking a breath. Nice. So we'll see. Uh, I'm, I've self-published, which is, you know, because I, I did had no faith in an existing publisher, you know, getting it out. I really wanted it out in election season. Um, because uh, like, you know, some of my films, it has uh, a, a political undercurrent. In this case, I'm dealing with the issue of the, you know, corporate privatization of water uh, and water, which is a basic human right uh, and a free access to it. Uh, and there are big corporations that that really want to you know, be make it a marketable resource. Uh, and ultimately, you know, if you if you can control people's access to water, you can control their behavior. Right. So there is a vein of politics running and progressive issues running under uh, the book. Uh, but on the surface, like my exploitation films, it's a, a, a rip-roaring, well, a ripping yarn uh, that, uh, you know, goes from, you know, uh, goes from one roller coaster ride to the next. Nice. Yeah, well, definitely uh, 
I just did a live purchase, so there you go. <laughs> wow, now, you go. now you're talking. Okay, I, I love the uh, I love your picture on here uh, on the book. Uh, do you uh, you fence? Yes, yes. I've been a uh, I've been fencing since I was thirteen. Nice. I captained the school team. Uh, I do all three weapons, but yes, uh, frankly, given the fact that I am now uh, 104. Uh, well, <laughs> In Hollywood years, uh, I actually, you know, I, I'm a pretty good for an old dog. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I frequently find myself fencing, um, against an opponent, opponent who is younger, um, particularly in Epe. And, um, uh, after, you know, maybe 30 points or so or 30, 30 hits, uh, um, can we take a break? <laughs> so okay okay fine 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 uh anyway so i uh i do like fighting nice um with a sword uh and uh so uh no there's it, it the, the, the there's an, a genuine adrenaline adrenaline rush uh, in uh in fencing it's it, it really does feel like combat where you're not interested in hurting the other person mm-hmm. but you're really interested in getting the tip of your blade onto his, onto your bat target. Right. Uh, and there's a, there's a rush, uh, about that. Um, and it, it, it doesn't mean that you're a violent person by nature. It's, it's a combat sport like, like American football, you know, yeah. uh, hockey. Um, uh, so, uh, I've, I've always enjoyed it. It's gymnastic chess and, uh, I recommend it uh, to anybody. And you actually, you're never too old. Uh, to start or really too young. I mean, young people are starting at eight. Uh, and, uh, you know, I foil is the fastest weapon and I'm regularly beaten by a, a 17 year old girl who's <laughs> going to become, I think, a national champion one day. Um, so anyway, that's, yeah, uh, nice. it, 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 it's a fun sport. So yeah. I, I have, I have other interests, let's say, than, uh, <laughs> just making film, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much, I am pretty cinema obsessed. Yeah. Uh, well, it has to deal with anything. Sorry? I was going to say it has to deal with anything of the genres that you attack because I don't think, I think you've made every type of genre <laughs> uh, as, as far as film goes from comedies. I mean, you did even uh, like the, what, Porky, the Porky's film. You did, um, well, I mean, it's called what, Pimp and Pee Wee now, but it's technically Porky's <laughs> yes, film. It, yes. Porky's well, War. I mean, you must look into the, the history of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I had to make that in 15 days, uh, it, you know, to, uh, for under, well, just under $500,000. Uh, but, you know, I'm not daunted by uh, such things. I mean, you can make a film on your, your cell phone now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and I do I take little videos occasionally, and, uh, and I certainly take pictures and post them on uh, uh, on Facebook. Uh, and you know, when the deer come back in fall, I'll probably be doing some more of my stuff with the deer. Um, but um, uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I think it's important to have uh, you know a little bit of a life outside yeah. of cinema, uh, but. Somehow, you know, wherever I go, I, I always see a good location. You know, go for a walk, <laughs> walk down the street, and I I think, ooh, you know, that would look good from over here. Yeah, okay. Well, you could have two people walking up, and they could talk, and then you could just track with them, and oh, you open up another whole vista over there. Oh, that could be good. Um, and you know, I look, I, I'm a sick puppy. 
but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know it's it, it, films you know yeah. I, I've been obsessed with them since I the, the you know the very first film that I you know that I saw I don't know what it was but I was I think I was four and it was projected uh, on a sheet uh, hung between on a clothesline uh, between two poles on an airfield in Libya uh, where my father commanded the particular air force base there and a 16 millimeter projector was projecting uh, what I suspect I believe was a Western anyway, horses and dust is what I can remember. But the visual image just, you know, that, that sort of window into imagination uh, that you could stand or sit there and watch um, that always fascinated me. And uh, I've been chasing it ever since. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I mean, your your passion for film definitely shows that your filmography, like like Brad said, you've tried pretty much everything. Um, what kind of keeps you coming back to, I guess, like more genre focused? You know, I mean, you you're looking through all all your films. I mean, I mean, uh, BMX Bandits is uh, is one of my favorite films. I love that flick. Uh, you did Night of the Demons too, and then even like the Leprechaun, the later Leprechaun films. Do, do you are you kind of wired to kind of go back to genre every time, or, or is that just kind of the wheelhouse that you enjoy? Or, well, I think partially it's it's a matter of what they offer you, mm-hmm. or what you can offer them that they want. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I yeah, I would love to do uh, you know maybe a, a, a meaningful social drama mm-hmm. uh, that had real point. Uh, and you know, uh, uh, you know, an activist film, perhaps. Uh, though they tend not to fare well at the box office, <laughs> they tend to they tend to uh, appeal only to the converted uh, mm-hmm. and and not the unconverted. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I you get typed in this business. Uh, you know, the executives are you know generally you know very concerned about losing their job because once you get you know, uh, you know, tossed out, it takes a while for you to get back into the circle again. So um, it's a very risk-averse uh, industry. So uh, people look at my resume uh, and, you know, I've had stars turn me down as the proposed director because, well, he made leprechaun movies. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, there's, you know, when you're trying to make a, Le- you know, leprechaun in Vegas in 14 days uh, and steal, sh- uh, steal a night shooting without permits in, in Vegas, um, uh, that's, you know, that takes a bit of doing. Uh, but the same skills could be applied to Shakespeare. Uh, and the key to being a good director of actors is good casting. Uh, so if you have a, a really good cast, and a really good actor is a good detective that he uh, he or she uh, will have you know scoured the text for clues as to what makes this character tick and in discussion with the director can w- can work on ways in which that can become more obvious to the audience uh, and then make the character richer so uh, these are skills that can be uh, applied to high-end drama as well as, um, you know, popcorn genre. But if your career, uh, if your resume lists all this popcorn genre, 
um, then you know people you know think well we we, we can't really uh, trust him with an important subject like this because you know there'd be a leprechaun popping up every five minutes or or suddenly <laughs> there'd be a car chase that had no real place in the story and you know I, I guess that's a, a that's really a, and 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 also you know people in uh, this is a business of star fuckers. Uh, they want the biggest name in, in front or behind the camera to give them security. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, that's, that's fair enough. That's the nature of the business. Uh, but I, I mean, in, well, I'll give you one film in, in particular, Happy Face Murders. You haven't seen that, uh, probably. It was, I made it for, I did four pictures for Showtime. They, they liked me in, in the, during, in one particular management cycle. As soon as that management cycle changed, I couldn't get my calls returned. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's Hollywood. Right. Uh, but, um, it, it's very feudal. And, uh, you, you depend upon your feudal lords, uh, to, <laughs> you know, to toss you a campaign to go and fight. Uh, and if your feudal lord gets deposed, uh, <laughs> well, um, you better better find another one. <laughs> but um, yeah, like and I've had a few people who you know who bounce back and uh, say, "I'm back. I, I, I've got a deal at so, so, such and such a place. Might come and help me." Um, but Happy Face Murders, I think, is one of my in, more interesting, quirky police procedurals that also has a, a vein of humor running through it, though. It's about a real life serial killer, an actual serial killer who is still who's in prison uh, and unrepentant and probably killed at least eight women. Um, but uh, the producers had you know developed a script that was sort of hovering on the brink. If they could get the, a director that Showtime wanted, uh, then uh, they could it would be greenlit, and then they'd go out to casting. So I. Uh, I was proposed by an executive uh, at Showtime who liked my work, uh, and they said, "Oh no, we, he 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 does he does leprechaun movies. He he couldn't possibly you know uh, direct this with the subtlety that it requires." Uh, and I don't think I did actually direct it with a great deal of subtlety, but I think uh, I, I, it, it has a consistent tone nonetheless. However, I won them over and. Uh, then helped do a draft uh, of, of the script with the, an, an excellent writer, John Peelmeyer. He, uh, and that draft, which introduced more humor into the piece, won Showtime over, and they greenlit the movie, and we got Anne Margaret uh, to uh, play you know, the, the, the lead. We got uh, Mark Helgenberger and Henry Thomas to play the two uh, investigators, um, and Nicholas Campbell to play, uh, you know, well, I, I, I'll let you find out whether he is uh, <laughs> guilty or innocent. Um, but uh, it had to be made in Toronto in 21 days. Uh, and I think it is a, an, an, a, an interesting, quirky uh, look at how media and, you know, you know entertainment has an influence over the criminal justice system and over the way people think about the criminal justice system. So I think, I think it's probably something you can get on demand from, uh, from, from Paramount, but it certainly had a VHS release, but unfortunately it was never finished. It was shot on 35, but never finished on 35. Hmm. 
that was finished on Digibeta, uh, and there was never a matched negative. Uh, so it'll never make Blu-ray. Okay, uh, right. Uh, but if you can find it, it's an example of my sl- somewhat, you know, quirky vision applied to a standard police procedural. Fantastic. Yeah, I have, I'll have to check it out. Um, let, me make, let me make a note here. Let me put this in here to highlight this. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much for chatting with us about about Dead End Drive-In and, and your career. It's been, uh, I mean, fantastic uh, hearing your stories about all this. Brad, do you have anything uh, before we close? Nope, just close? thank you for uh, <laughs> making movies, man. Yeah. Well, You're- yeah. Thank you for your interest. I'm yeah. flat, and uh, and thank you for getting the headsman's daughter. I, you know, I I think um, yeah, if you, yeah, I promise you a page turner. Let's say. <laughs> hey, I'm a been a longtime fan of your film, so if it's oh, if it's anything like favorite, that, then, way, what is your favorite of mine? Um, Turkey Shoot. Ah. Next, next to Night of the Demons Two. <laughs> yes. Oh God! Why didn't they come to me when they? wanted to remake the night of the demons franchise <laughs> yeah. i know right yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of that and when i was younger you know before i really kind of dove into cinema you know all around i, I guess i was you know i was in my young teens is when i went to go see from dust till dawn in the theater and when i saw that sequence where they're gearing up in uh in the strip bar I was, and then and they had the super soaker. I was like, "Son of a bitch!" They ripped that <laughs> off, you know. But then, yeah. then growing up, I was like, "Oh no, that's totally what Tarantino does. He loves to show that, hey, this inspired me." And you mm. know, uh, having having that connection in those two movies, and you know, from Dust Till Dawn also being one of my favorite movies of all time. Like, um, you know, it's just they they go hand in hand, and it's 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 a beautiful thing. But yeah, I, I would say Turkey Shoot is my my favorite uh, by far. Yeah, it, it it has a kind of in-your-face outrageousness, but uh, because uh, and that's motivated by uh, a lack of money. Uh, hmm. you know, there there was a you know a sudden budget shortfall, shall we say, uh, a couple of weeks before the shoot, uh, and not all the money turned up. Uh, but the you know there were a lot of contractual uh, obligations financially to, as we say, above the line. So the shortfall had to come out of the below the line, and suddenly a forty-day shoot had to go down to twenty-eight. Oh wow! Um, uh, and a ninety-four-page script um, had to have basically twelve pages torn out of it. The whole fifteen-page nineteen eighty-four sequence in which the uh, the lead characters were captured uh, had to go, and we had to start uh, at the prison camp. Uh, so I had, a, you know, this was a, a this film tested my editorial skill, let's say, uh, because I had to find ways in which uh, to layer in that backstory as we were shooting, uh, and you know the, the scene, brief scene where I'm clubbing, you know, Steve Railsback over the head uh, in his flashback, and you know where Olivia Hussey uh, is. You know, wrongly accused of being a sympathizer and arrested uh, by our stunt coordinator uh, because you know, I had to use available people and <laughs> and how do I get a how do I get a sense of the future outside of the camp? Well, God, okay, I'll put it in a jewelry shop and shoot it ch- real tight. All of the, the, those scenes had to be shot 
in the last four hours of our 28th day. Wow. Just uh, uh, to, you know, to provide a little bit of backstory. Um, and then I came up with the idea of doing an opening title uh, full of you know, news film of, you know, riots and, and you know, the violent suppression of, viol- of, of, of protest. Uh, and that's, I'm quite proud of the way I designed that uh, multi-panel uh, split-screen sequence. Um, you know, I, I, I always liked, you know, multiple panel uh, films like, you know, Mad Dogs and Englishman, you know, that took 16 millimeter and, and, and double, you know, du- double images and, uh, and so forth. And uh, so uh, that, 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 that title helped. But the final challenge was how do I blow up the prison camp? We, we'd committed ourselves to the explosions. We didn't have as many huts to blow up as we originally wanted. Um, we could certainly blow it up, but what was going to blow it up? Because we're no longer are we going to get a whole bunch of helicopters strafing and bombing and you know doing a, a bit of a, a Vietnam thing. Uh, uh, and so, uh, but I scoured the the woods, so to speak, for 35 millimeter stock footage and uh, found it in a government. Uh, a, a Royal Australian Air Force documentary about the the Mirage jets that they had just bought, uh, and uh, there's a, ho- a horrible mixture of periods throughout this film. <laughs> you look, some of the rebels are firing, you know, uh, World War II German Schmeisers, <laughs> but uh, so, but you know, you, you you get what you pay for to a certain extent. So uh, I think it's more important they be firing. You know, that everybody had guns rather than everybody had maybe authentic guns. Um, but anyway, so I found this footage and was able to, without harming the quality, bump it up to the Cinemascope format uh, and cut it in. And, you know, it uh, it works quite well. And it also was quite effective in the trailer in making the film look bigger than it really was. So that was 28 10-hour days. <laughs> nice. Oh man! Awesome. Um, well, like I said, Brian, thank you so much for for chatting with us. Um, there, there's so much more we could talk about. Uh, uh, we 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 should have to have you on again. Um, I think when when uh uh was that Kung Fu? Oh, man, man, man from Hong Kong. Kong. Oh, man, yeah, yeah, um, man from Hong Kong. It's, uh, yeah, go, you can Com- pre-order, out. incidentally, uh, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it goes on official release on October the twenty fifth. Well, um, yeah, we'll have to grab that, and uh, we'd love to talk to you about that film. I mean, I have others, all these other movies that uh, I want to chat with you about, but um, but we'll 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 cut it for now. We'll we'll save, give everyone a little, uh, you know. Yeah, they'll have to wait <laughs> wait for another yeah. time. <laughs> there are there are there are eight million stories. <laughs> this has been one of them. Yes, um, Dead and Driving is out on uh, Arrow Video right now, and. Um, uh, so you guys can grab that from them right now. It's uh, this is a dual release, right, Brad? Uh, no, this is just Blu-ray, right? Oh, this is just a U.S. release, right? No, it's a UK. Oh no, release. no, no! I oh. thought you meant Blu-ray DVD. No, Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just a Blu-ray release. But yeah. it's is, was it a dual? Was it UK? Yeah, and? it was U- U.S. and UK. Okay, yeah. fantastic. So yeah, Arrow are a, U- a UK-based company. Yeah, I really applaud them. They went to a great deal of trouble. Uh, <laughs> they put a lot into uh cleaning up the uh the original uh interpositive. Mm. It looks it looks it looks great. 
it, so. it does look exactly the, the way I wanted it to look. The, nice. the colors pop. Nice. I like popping colors, you know. I Me mean, too. Yeah, the, the, the neon signs when, when you first see the, when you see the, the drive-in sign and everything, it just looks fantastic. Yeah. And reflected in the wet down. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we strategically placed that puddle so that <laughs> the star uh, neon would be reflected in that puddle before the car goes past. Very nice. See, if, uh, water doesn't cost you anything. <laughs> no. The neon's paid for. The car's paid for. How? Where do you frame the shot? There so, you go. There you go. Yep. All right, um, you guys can grab that Blu-ray right now, and uh, and, um, and Headsman's daughter, Headsman's daughter. Yes, I have the links in the show notes to the book. Check it out, the digital or the hardcover, or not hardcover, but uh, a hard copy, the soft cover. And um, Turkish Shoot is also out on Blu-ray as well. Uh, let's see. lots of extras on that one. Too. Yeah, that's yeah, a great disc. Yeah, Severin put that out. Yeah, and uh, Drive Hard. That was in my. That was in my top. Uh, that was in my top. 10 Blu-ray releases last year, I think. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, good. Good. Yes. So, yeah, I've been a long, long time fan. So. <laughs> and also <laughs> uh, check out Drive Hard, uh, Brian's newest uh, newest film. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a quirky comedy. It's, yeah, uh, I think RLJ put that out. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah they yeah. did. John if Cusack. You like, yeah, if you like John Cusack and Thomas It's Chippen, funny. It's funny. I, think, I think I reviewed it on the show before. You did. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny. I like it. Worth checking yeah. out. All right, Brian, thanks again. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to you uh, again, for sure. Well, I, as you know, I hate a chat. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. All Good right, luck. thank you. All right, man, well, that's going to do it for, uh, for this week's show. We got some bullshit to, to, to plug, though. Oh, we're, God. Yes, please. We're, we, we're, we got these enamel pins that, uh, that we've created, and uh, the pre-order is... Oh, the Omar are up. created. Omar's created. And we're don't, just, don't take all the credit, Sean. <laughs> I, I haven't done shit. I put these up on the website. Um, but we got two of them. We got Bloody Ballet, which is, of course, a riff on uh, the Dario Argento film Suspiria. And we got Oily O'Bannon, which is a riff on uh, Return of the Living Dead, the cross with Garbage Pail Kids. So they're both available for ten bucks each. Um, the pre-order is shipped is up ten dollars ship. These should be uh, arriving soon and shipping. The Oily O'Bannon should be coming in very soon. I should be getting it. Um, today is Monday, the what seventeenth? Yeah. I, th- I should be getting them on Wednesday or today. So next three days. Yeah. So by the time you hear this, hopefully we'll start shipping them out. Um, you know, you never know these things. You know, they they may not ship on the exact day that we said, but we're going to be getting these out. Uh, we'll get there very soon. And I'm totally excited to uh, to have these myself. But uh, grab those. They're only ten bucks each. Uh, of course, there's a little added charge if you're uh, international. So. Outside the U.S., but we will work it out with you because um, we're not going to take your what we're charging eight dollars. Yeah, I mean we're, we're we had to do well, an estimate, we'll, so we'll, we'll definitely see we'll definitely be fair, out. and you know we'll combine pins if you want more to try. As to, I said, know. if if you want if you're ordering and you want these both, make sure you order them both together because it'll charge you only eight bucks for shipping, and make sure you order them together. 
Um, and I think yeah. I put that up on the, on the site. It should say that. So that's, that's over there at thescreamcast.com. Of course, uh, other ways you can help the show is to check out our sponsors, grindhousevideo.com. Of course, um, I always check them first before I go anywhere else. Uh, Cheaper than Amazon. Yep. Most, most of the time. Yep. Yeah. Um, vinegar syndrome, of course, check them out. And of course, uh, there is horror pack and a uh, coffee shop of horrors. You can get 10% off if you use the coupon code screamcast. And GLP pins, get lapel pins, who is the makers of our pins. Yes. So, yep. Also, buy, buy, buy from them. Music. Great customer service. Yes. Cheap prices and a friendly smile. <laughs> uh, artwork design by Kevin Spencer. Music for the podcast, uh, the opening and closing by Wolfman of Mars. Music that you've heard between the segments is from a band called Switchblade Saturdays. Oh my god, are you uh, playing music sure you, again? Make sure you check them out. All listeners are gone. <laughs> a good friend of mine, Zari, uh, way back in the day, this is band. They have an EP out right now. It's pretty damn good. So check them out. Um, SwitchbladeSaturdays.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. That is going to do it for this week's show. Uh, how about Coffee Shop of Horrors? I did it already. Oh, okay. You weren't paying attention. Sometimes I drift in. Sometimes I drift in and out. Sorry. <laughs> uh, of course, follow us on social media. The links are over at thescreamcast.com. Our Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all that shit. We'll talk to all you guys next week. Thank you for listening. I had a really Bye. good time. Oh, by Thank the way, uh, no show oh. next week. I'm on vacation. So we'll be picking up after that when I get back. When do you go on vacation? Next week. Like next week, next week? Like like when this show is posted, I will be heading to Northern California. We're going to record one in the meantime. Watch this. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. Oh, don't tell me you're leaving. The party's just begun. Oh.